One, introduction, approximately seven minutes and 30 seconds. Welcome to the Benjamin Franklin Museum. You're listening to an audio-described tour, one that makes visual images more accessible for visitors with vision impairments and more meaningful for all visitors. Some material is tactile. I'll mention that as we proceed. But please, do not handle other items. You received your audio tour player from an attendant in a recessed nook. About six feet to the right is a raised and brailled map of the museum on an angled desk about waist height in another three-foot-wide recessed nook. You're standing in a hallway about 100 feet long. You're in the middle along one of the long sides. As you face the information area, note that restrooms and a water fountain are located about 45 feet along to your right. Take care, you may encounter on the right a round pole about 3 feet in diameter. After 45 feet, the restrooms and water fountain are 10 feet to your left. The men's room is to the left, the women's room is to the right, and the water fountain is in the middle. The tour is organized to follow a recommended route for our exhibits, but if you wish, you may visit the various displays in any order. Your player is designed to automatically play the appropriate recording as you visit each area. Please direct your attention to your audio tour player. The player is a palm-sized unit. Please hold it so the cord attached to your earpiece emerges from a socket at the top of the receiver. Hold the unit so that its tactile control buttons face you. At the top in the center is a round button displaying a red square. It is used to turn off the unit at the end of your tour. Just below is the resume or pause button with a black triangle facing right and two vertical lines. Simply touch this button to pause the recording. Pressing it again will resume your tour. To the left and right of these two buttons are the volume control buttons. These square buttons are somewhat larger. Pressing the left button will decrease the volume. Pressing the right button will increase the volume. Below these four buttons is a standard keypad with numbered keys in three rows, three keys in each row. They are numbered left to right, one to three, four to six, and seven to nine. Below the 8 key is the 0 key. Please ignore the keys to the left and right of the 0 key. You will use the numbered keys to access audio layers that will provide additional information. Now let's begin our tour with a few words about Benjamin Franklin and this museum. The Benjamin Franklin Museum in Independence National Historical Park is a tribute to one of our nation's greatest citizens. The accomplishments and legacy of Benjamin Franklin have inspired politicians and teachers, explorers and inventors, students and scientists. Here, at the site of his final Philadelphia home, visitors are invited to get to know Benjamin Franklin, his life and work, and the legacy he left for future generations. Six distinct room areas focus on his most prominent character traits, which contributed to his ability to accomplish the things for which we remember him today. From room to room, visitors will be able to explore his sociability, ambition and rebelliousness, motivation to improve, senses of curiosity and wonder, abilities to think strategically and be persuasive, 
and foresight to write his autobiography. Interspersed among the doorways, windows, and other elements that suggest the interior of a domestic space, there are a wide range of ways to access Franklin's story in this action-packed exhibition. You will encounter, at your own pace, touchscreen games, digital presentations, audio, hands-on mechanical elements, touchable objects, original artifacts, and historical graphics. From a position facing the brailled and raised map, please follow the wall to your left for about 30 feet and up a slight incline. Note that two additional wide and round poles will be directly ahead of you about 10 feet away. At the wall on your right, you'll come upon an exhibit panel with a statue at about waist height of a creature that crops up throughout our tour, Skuggs the Squirrel. Feel free to examine him with your hands. Franklin was fond of small, furry creatures like squirrels, or Skuggs, as they were called. You will encounter Skuggs in various places throughout the museum. From a position facing the Skuggs statue, turn left to a side wall and follow it to the left about three feet, and then continue to follow the wall to the right about 20 feet. You'll pass two cylindrical columns, about two feet in diameter, five and 15 feet down on your left. Along this section of the right-hand wall is a projection of two window panes, suggesting perhaps two windows in Franklin's home. At the end of the wall, please pause for a moment. You may note a video projection on the wall ahead of you at one short end of the long rectangular area. Black and white drawings depict Franklin with a young woman behind a handheld fan and the words, man is a sociable being. Franklin bows his head and smiles. Next, a house is struck by a lightning bolt and erupts in flames. A floating fire bucket passes past the house, extinguishing the flames. Franklin's image appears holding the bucket and words project, What good have I done today? Next, a kite floats in stormy skies with the words, A thirst for knowledge. Franklin and a key are at the end of a string supporting the kite. The kite floats off and the image of a printer appears, grasping a portion of a large printing press. Be frugal and industrious. You may note the grinding sound of the printer pulling on a lever. A page flutters from the press. On it is the word free. Then Franklin appears at a chess game, among others. Life is a kind of chess game. Two hands clasp and shake to applause. Finally, the woman with the fan appears again, the fan opening with a sharp sound. This concludes the introduction to our tour. Please move forward about 10 feet to a wall ahead of you, the wall with the projections. Then please move to your right. The wall will zigzag in twice, and then you can proceed forward about 12 feet, past an opening to your left, and the next section of our tour, Man is a Sociable Being, Ardent and Dutiful. The audio description will begin automatically. 2. Sociable Man, Ardent and Dutiful, approximately 11 minutes. The first panel in this section is titled, Man is a Sociable Being, in large, raised type. Just underneath these words is a purple icon for this area, three teacups. 
Indeed, the wall covering throughout this area features tiny teacups throughout. Text reads, Charming, naturally sociable, and witty, Franklin drew people to him wherever he lived. He was dutiful and affectionate toward his family, but it was to close friends that he most often expressed his ardent devotion. During the course of his long life, he wrote thousands of letters to family and friends, maintaining personal ties both in America and across the Atlantic. Turn to your left for just a few feet, and then immediately right off the carpeted area to the hardwood floor in this section. It's about 15 feet square, and we'll explore it moving clockwise. Proceed six feet to your left. A recorded story, The Whistle, will play on separate speakers, so you may wish to pause this recording while you enjoy the tale. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. The audio is from an animated video playing on a screen mounted on the wall. Many of the videos shown throughout the exhibits feature face images from actual paintings and drawings atop animated bodies drawn with appropriate attire and in timely situations. Text reads, Franklin often told humorous stories to make a moral point. In The Whistle, written by Franklin in 1779, young Benjamin's delight with his new toy turns to dismay once he learns that he paid too much for it. Franklin used this childhood lesson to question the value people often place on status, wealth, and possessions. Just below the monitor playing The Whistle is a clear case that features a silver tankard about 10 inches high and 6 inches in diameter. Crafted by Elias Boudinot in the mid-18th century, it was originally owned by Benjamin Franklin. Franklin joked that an almanac writer should bear a coat of arms. This gives luster and authority to what a man writes. You can experience the feel of the coat of arms by moving to your right and reaching out to an engraving of the design on a table. Just to the right of the engraving on the table is an interactive activity introduced with the words, Choosing a Trade. Franklin pursued several different trades before he decided on printing. You're invited to match the trade with the product. If you'd like to hear a description of the objects contained in this tactile exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 211. Layer 211. Match the Trade Interactive. Within a wood box, eight revolves are featured in two vertical rows. On the left, each revolve notes a particular trade. On the right, the corresponding revolve features a drawing of an individual pursuing that trade. When the two images match, a green light to the right glows. Otherwise, a red light brightens. The top left revolve lists three trades, mariner, cutler, and soap boiler. The top right revolve pictures a man holding a sextant with the sea in the background. Next, a man in shirt sleeves stands at a wheel where he sharpens an implement. The third image is of an individual using a long scoop to mix steaming liquid in a vat. Can you match the trade to the image? The next set of images has the trades turner, bricklayer, and brazier. 
The images at left include a man carving wood at a spinning mechanism. Next, a man uses a trowel to construct a brick wall. And a man in shirt sleeves shaping a round container. The third set of images lists the trades tallow chandler, carpenter, and printer. The images depict a man carving a length of wood with scrapings peeling away in curls, a man in shirt sleeves pulling on a lever. Nearby, another individual studies paper on an angled board, and a person adjusting rods over dozens of thin tapers. Finally, the bottom horizontal row lists the following trades at left Sawyer, Cooper, Stonemason. On the right are pictured a man at slats of wood forming a fence, another person carving a curve in a solid block, and a man wielding a hammer at a barrel. Listen for the congratulatory huzzah will sound when all the lights glow green. End layer 211. On the wall above and behind the trade interactive are two ornate frames encompassing alternating images of members of Franklin's family, his friends, and household. They include portraits of Franklin himself at ages 9, 40, 60, and 80. Just to the right of the trade interactive is a touchscreen interactive. It displays four images representing one of the four different households in Franklin's life, Boston, Philadelphia, London, and Paris. Touching each image reveals information and images about individuals in each household. For more detail about these households, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 212. Layer 212. Meet the People Interactive. Boston Household. Josiah and Abiah Folger Franklin, parents. Benjamin's father, Josiah, 1657 to 1744, was an English Puritan who moved to Boston in 1683. There he established a chandlery to produce soap and candles. When Josiah's first wife died, having born seven children, he married Abiah Folger, 1667 to 1752, with whom he had ten more. Benjamin was the 15th of his father's 17 children. When he established himself in Philadelphia, Benjamin wrote to his parents to report that he was prospering and well-respected. His mother responded in a letter that is the only one to survive from her. I am glad to hear that you are so well-respected in your town for them to choose you alderman, although I don't know what it means nor what the better you will be of it beside the honor of it. I hope you will look up to God and thank him for all his good providences toward you. Abiah Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, October 14, 1751. James Franklin, brother. James Franklin, 1697 to 1735, one of Benjamin's older brothers, owned a printing shop in Boston. When Benjamin was 12 years old, he was apprenticed to James. The New England Current, James's newspaper, was critical of local leaders. This led to his imprisonment and a short ban from publishing. 
To get around the ban, young Benjamin's name temporarily appeared as the newspaper's editor. At 17, resentful of his brother's treatment, Benjamin ran away. A few years later, James moved to Newport, Rhode Island, where he established that colony's first printing office. Although it took some years for James to forgive Benjamin for running away, the brothers eventually reconciled. When James died at age 38, Benjamin took on his son, also named James, as an apprentice in his printing shop in Philadelphia. Jane Meekham, sister. Jane Franklin Meekham, 1712-1794, was Benjamin's beloved younger sister. Married at only 15, she bore 12 children, all but one of whom she outlived. One of her few joys was in corresponding with Benjamin, who sent her financial assistance and advice. Jane followed Benjamin's career with great interest, and they remained close throughout their lives. Jane had no formal education, and her life was a struggle as she coped with a sick husband and a constant state of poverty. To earn money, she sewed bonnets and took in boarders. Shortly after the Constitutional Convention adjourned, she described to her brother the political opinions expressed by women of her acquaintance, despite the fact that they could not vote. Boston, November 9, 1787. Dear brother, some other females in their state are afflicted with the horrid iniquity of the public proceedings. Old Madam Green is sister to Governor Collins, but she says if she had an apron full of votes to dispose of, she would throw them all in against her brother. You perceive we have some quarrelsome spirits against the Constitution, but it does not appear to be those of superior judgment. Your affectionate sister, Jane Meekham. Jane Meekham to Benjamin Franklin, November 9th, 1787. Benjamin Franklin, uncle. Benjamin was named after an uncle, a silk dyer in London. The elder Benjamin Franklin, 1666 to 1727, moved to Boston in 1715 when his nephew was nine years old. A poet and lover of books, he instilled in young Benjamin a love of reading and a fondness for word and math games. His young namesake appreciated Uncle Benjamin's irreverence and humor. While still in London, Uncle Benjamin wrote this acrostic for his six-year-old nephew. Sent to B.F. in N.E. 15 July, 1710. B. Be to thy parents an obedient son. E. Each day let duty constantly be done. N. Never give way to sloth or lust of pride. I, if free, you'd be from thousand ills beside. A, above all ills, be sure, avoid the shelf. M, man's danger lies in Satan, sin, and self. I, in virtue, learning wisdom, progress make. N, Ne'er shrink at suffering for thy Savior's sake. F. Fraud and all falsehood in thy dealings flee. R. Religious always in thy station be. A. Adore the maker of thy inward part. N. 
Now's the accepted time. Give him they heart. K. Keep a good conscience. Tis a constant friend. L. Like a judge and witness, this thy acts attend. I. In heart with bended knee alone adore. N. None but the three in one forevermore. Uncle Benjamin Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, July 15, 1710. Philadelphia Household William Franklin, son. The identity of William Franklin's mother is not known. After Benjamin married Deborah Reed, they brought up young William, circa 1728 to 1813, in their household in Philadelphia. He and his father were close, and Franklin admired his son's political ambitions until William, as New Jersey's royal governor, sided with the British during the Revolution. William's loyalty to Britain not only strained his relationship with his father, but also with his own son, William Temple Franklin. William moved to England after being held in captivity during the Revolutionary War and remained there until his death. Deborah Franklin, wife. Deborah Reed, 1704, question mark, to 1774, was raised in Philadelphia. She met Franklin when he first arrived in Philadelphia from Boston, but she married another man, who then abandoned her. In 1730, Deborah and Benjamin entered into a common-law marriage. As Benjamin's printing business grew, Deborah helped in the shop while also raising their children. In 1757, Franklin left for England with son William, and Deborah stayed behind in Philadelphia with their daughter, Sally. He returned only once, for two years, before Deborah's death, 17 years later. During Franklin's time abroad, he and Deborah continually corresponded. To remind him of Deborah, he commissioned her portrait in London, and had one of him sent back to her. Francis Folger Franklin, son. Franklin doted on his son, Francis Frankie Folger Franklin, 1732 to 1736, who died of smallpox at the age of four. Franklin delayed immunizing his son against smallpox. When Frankie died, his father became a vigorous advocate for inoculation, a practice that was widely distrusted at the time. Sarah Franklin Bache, daughter. When Sarah, Sally Franklin Bache, 1743-1808, was a young teenager, her father left for England, and she stayed behind in Philadelphia with her mother. Franklin lived abroad for most of the next three decades, but sent her frequent letters and gifts. Sally married Richard Bache in 1767, and they raised seven children at Franklin Court. During the Revolution, she served in the Ladies' Association, which raised money to benefit the American troops. When Franklin finally returned to Philadelphia in his late 70s, Sally cared for him at Franklin Court until his death. Richard Bache, Son-in-Law Richard Bache, 1737-1811, was born in England and moved to Philadelphia in his late 20s. In 1767, he married Franklin's daughter, Sally. 
At first, Franklin questioned Richard's ability to provide for Sally because he did not have a trade. But Richard was soon accepted into the family. He and Sally lived at Franklin Court, where they raised seven children. Richard eventually became a successful merchant and helped handle Franklin's accounts in Philadelphia while his father-in-law was abroad. He also served as United States Postmaster General from 1776 to 1782. Sarah White Reed, mother-in-law. When Franklin arrived in Philadelphia in 1723, he lodged with Sarah, 1675 to 1761, and John Reed and their children on Market Street. By the following year, John Reed had died and Franklin had formed an attachment to Deborah, the Reed's daughter. Mrs. Reed discouraged the match, especially as Franklin planned a voyage to London and his future was uncertain. Mrs. Reed instead encouraged Deborah to marry another man. By the time Franklin returned to Philadelphia, Deborah's husband had disappeared. Franklin and Deborah rekindled their relationship and married under common law. Mrs. Reed arranged for the couple to live in one of the houses she had inherited and moved in with them. She used a room in the house as a shop where she made and sold salves and ointments. The widow Reed, removed from the upper end of High Street to the new printing office near the market, continues to make and sell her well-known ointment for the itch, with which she has cured abundance of people in and about the city for many years past. It is always effectual for that purpose and never fails to perform the cure speedily. It also kills or drives away all sorts of lice in once or twice using. It has no offensive smell, but rather a pleasant one, and may be used without the least apprehension of danger, even to a suckling infant, being perfectly innocent and safe. Price, two shillings. A galley pot containing an ounce, which is sufficient to remove the most inveterate itch and render the skin clear and smooth. She also continues to make and sell her excellent family salve or ointment for burns or scalds, price one shilling an ounce, and several other sorts of ointments and salves as usual. At the same place may be had Lockyer's pills at three cents a pill. Advertisement in the Pennsylvania Gazette, August 26, 1731. Peter and Jemima, enslaved servants. Over a period of about 50 years, the Franklin household included free white servants and at least seven enslaved servants of African descent. Among the enslaved servants were Peter and Jemima, a married couple purchased by the Franklins sometime before 1750. After preparing a will in which Peter and Jemima would be freed in the event of Franklin's death, Franklin and his son William left for London in 1757. They brought Peter and another enslaved manservant named King with them. Jemima stayed behind with Deborah Franklin, along with a young boy named Othello, who may have been Peter and Jemima's son. When Franklin died many years later, he no longer owned any slaves. London Household Mary Stevenson Hewson, friend. 
Mary Polly Stevenson Hewson, 1734 to 1795, was in her early 20s when Franklin first boarded at the London townhouse where she lived with her widowed mother. Polly became like a daughter to Franklin. Polly married in 1770 and was widowed four years later. She moved to Philadelphia to be with Franklin in his old age and along with his daughter and grandchildren was with him when he died. Margaret Stevenson, Landlady and Friend Margaret Stevenson, circa 1706 to 1783, owned the Craven Street residence where Franklin boarded in London. While at first she treated him like a guest, she developed an affection for him during his ten-year stay there. Mrs. Stevenson accompanied Franklin to dinners and social occasions. After Deborah died, Mrs. Stevenson hoped she would become Franklin's wife, but he was not eager to remarry. A year later, he left London, never to return. King Enslaved Servant When Franklin and his son William went to London in 1757, they brought two enslaved servants, King and Peter. King served as William's manservant, while Peter served Franklin. In a letter home, Franklin wrote that King ran away and became the servant of a lady that was very fond of making him a Christian and contributing to his education and improvement. Franklin further reported that the lady taught him to play on the violin and French horn. Whether she will finally be willing to part with him or persuade Billy to sell him to her, I know not. In the meantime, he is no expense to us. Benjamin Franklin to Deborah Franklin, June 27, 1760. Paris Household Benjamin Franklin Bache, Grandson Benjamin Benny Franklin Bache, 1769-1798, was the son of Franklin's daughter, Sally. At age seven, Benny went to France with Franklin, along with another of Franklin's grandsons, Temple. Benny lived there for three years before going to boarding school in Switzerland. He returned to Philadelphia when he was 16, but went back to France to be with his grandfather and learned to print at Franklin's Press in Passy. After Franklin's death, Bache published the General Advertiser and later the Anti-Federalist Aurora newspapers at his printing office in Philadelphia. With the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, he was arrested for his newspaper's sharp criticisms of President John Adams. He contracted yellow fever that same year and died before he could stand trial for sedition. William Temple Franklin, Grandson William Temple Franklin, circa 1760 to 1823, known as Temple, was the son of Franklin's son, William. He was born and educated in England. In 1775, he went with Franklin to America, and the following year traveled to France with him and another of Franklin's grandsons, Benny. Temple served as Franklin's private secretary during the French mission until he returned with Franklin to America in 1785. Temple briefly operated a farm in New Jersey, but moved to England shortly after Franklin's death. In 1798, he returned to Paris, where he spent the remainder of his life. He edited Franklin's autobiography and some of his correspondence. Jacques Donatien, le roi de Chaumont, friend 
and host. Chaumont's estate near Paris served as Franklin's home while he was one of the American commissioners to France during the American Revolution. Chaumont 1725 to 1803, owned many businesses as well as a ceramic studio run by Giovanni Battista Nini. He produced portrait medallions in terracotta, including one of Chaumont's guest, Franklin. Chaumont and Franklin became close friends, and Chaumont put his wealth and connections in service to the American cause, supplying gunpowder, ammunition, clothing, and other forms of aid to the Americans. End layer 212. Please continue just about five feet to your right. You'll hear the audio from another animated video, a recorded story, a china bowl with a spoon of silver. It will play on separate speakers, so you may wish to pause this recording while you enjoy the tale. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Below the video monitor is a plexiglass case that exhibits actual ceramics from Franklin's house, including a Chinese family rose bowl dating from 1760 to 1770 and descended in the family of Franklin's grandson, William Bache. The hard paste porcelain item is decorated with red and green floral images. Just to the right of the ceramics display is a tall panel that reads, Philadelphia Household, Franklin saw his future wife, Deborah Reed, on his very first day in Philadelphia. When they married, common law, in 1730, the household already included Franklin's young son, William, whom Deborah raised. Later, their family grew with the birth of their son, Francis Folger, who died at four, and daughter, Sally. In their early years, the family lived a simple and frugal life. Deborah worked alongside Benjamin to support his growing printing business. Over the years, they shared their home with Deborah's mother and their own grandchildren, as well as house guests, boarders, apprentices, and free and enslaved servants. Turn right at this corner of this area. On the wall at left is a window complete with small window panes, like a window in this room of Franklin's house. Please turn around 180 degrees and walk forward six feet on an angle to the left, to the closest end of a table. On one corner of the table, in the middle of this room, there are three tactile Wedgwood profile medallions from the late 19th century. Feel free to touch them and note the features of the three generations of Franklin men. Franklin at center, his son William at left, and his grandson at right, called Temple, who was the last of his descendants with the last name Franklin. Moving left, follow the table around to its opposite side where you'll find Franklin's family tree. For more detail on this portion of the exhibit, Please press pause on your audio player, followed by 213. Layer 213, Franklin's family tree. The entire line of Benjamin Franklin's relatives has descended in the family of daughter Sarah and Richard Bache, whose seven children married and had children of their own. Franklin's grandson, William Temple, was the last direct male heir to carry the name Franklin. Many of the members of the family tree are noted alongside small portraits of each member. 
at top are Benjamin, 1706 to 1790, and Deborah Reed, 1708 to 1774. The next generation includes, at left, Franklin's son by another woman, William Franklin, 1728 to 1813, and to the right, Benjamin and Deborah's progeny, Francis Folger Franklin, 1732 to 1736, and Sarah Franklin Bache, 1743 to 1808, along with her husband, Richard Bache, 1732 to 1811. In the next row, at left, is William Temple Franklin, 1762 to 1823, the son of William, Franklin's illegitimate son, and his unknown wife. Richard and Sarah Franklin Bache had eight children, beginning with Benjamin Franklin Bache, 1769 to 1798, and ending with Sarah Bache, 1788 to 1863. End layer 2-1-3. To your left in a large plexiglass case is the Franklin Family Holy Bible, dating to 1763 and originally owned by Sarah Franklin Bache. Adjacent to the several-inch thick volume, approximately 15 inches by 20 inches, is a text that reads, Franklin admired the work of the English printer John Baskerville. He bought this Bible in England for his daughter, Sarah, inscribing it to her on the title page. It descended in the family of Sarah's daughter, Deborah. Now please move along the table to the right and from its end walk about seven feet on a slight angle to the right. At this corner of the room is a table on which you'll find a flip book of laminated pages. Text tells us to meet Franklin's closest friends in England and France. During his years abroad, Franklin formed close friendships with men and women in England and France. When he returned to Philadelphia, he used letters to stay in touch share news, and reminisce about their time together. For detail on the individuals noted in the flipbook, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 214. Layer 214, Franklin's Closest Friends Flipbook. Meet Franklin's closest friends in England and France. Mary Polly Stevenson Hewson. 1734 to 1795. Polly was the daughter of Franklin's London landlady. She became like a daughter to him, and they exchanged many letters over the years. Franklin hoped she would marry his son William, but she married a doctor who died after four years. Polly moved to Philadelphia with her three children in 1786 and was with Franklin and his family when he died. Benjamin Franklin to Mary Stevenson. London, June 7th, 1762. Dear Polly, Our ships for America do not sail so soon as I expected. It will be yet five or six weeks before we embark and leave the old world for the new. I fancy I feel a little like dying saints who in parting with those they love in this world are only comforted with the hope of more perfect happiness in the next. I have in America connections of the most engaging kind, and happy as I have been in the friendships here contracted, those promise me greater and more lasting felicity. Adieu, my dear good girl, and believe me ever your affectionate friend, B. Franklin. 
Anne-Louise Boivin d'Audencourt, Brouillon de Jouy, 1744 to 1824. In Passy, France, Franklin befriended his neighbor, Madame Brouillon, an acclaimed musician and composer. He became a frequent guest at her home. She and Franklin developed a warm friendship and corresponded until the end of his life. After returning to Philadelphia, Franklin wrote this letter in French to Madame Brion. Benjamin Franklin to Madame Brion, à Philadelphie, c'est 20 octobre 1785. I think much and often about those happy hours and days that I spent with you in your charming house, the seat of friendship, benevolence, and harmony, with good Monsieur Brion as well, and your lovable children. Hours and days gone by, alas, never to return. I'm happy to be with my family, my children, it is true. But for the rest, I was happier in France. Adieu, my dear girl, adieu. Anne-Catherine de Lignenville, d'Autrecourt, Helvetius, 1719-1800. Franklin lived near Madame Helvetius in Paris. He became part of her social circle of well-known artists and philosophers. Both were widowed, and Franklin proposed to her in 1779, but she declined. When Franklin returned to America, they continued to correspond. In 1788, at the age of 82, Franklin wrote this note in French to Madame Helvetius, reflecting fondly on their time together. Benjamin Franklin to Madame Helvetius, Philadelphia, October 25th, 1788. I cannot, my dear friend, let this occasion pass without telling you how much I still love you and that I am in good health. I reflect continually on the pleasures I've known in the delightful society of Otoya. So often in my reveries, I'm either dining with you, sitting next to you on one of your thousand sofas, or walking with you in your lovely garden. Please convey to the good abbots that being now free from the burden of public affairs, I hope to become a much better correspondent and that I will be writing them shortly. B.F. William Strahan. 1715 to 1785. Strahan, an English printer and bookseller, supplied Franklin with large orders of English books for Franklin's bookstore in Philadelphia. Later, when Franklin moved to London, the two men became close friends. However, during the revolution, Strahan sided with the British, and this severely strained their friendship. They started corresponding again after the war, but would never meet again. Writing from France as the war drew to an end, Franklin began to try to repair their friendship. Benjamin Franklin to William Strahan, Passy, December 4, 1781. Dear Sir, I am glad to hear that you have married your daughter happily and that your prosperity continues. I hope it may never meet with any interruption, having still, though at present divided by public circumstances, a remembrance of our ancient private friendship. Pleased to present my affectionate respects to Mrs. Strahan and my love to your children. With great esteem and regard, I am, dear sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, B. Franklin. Jonathan Shipley, 1714-1788. Shipley, 
Bishop of St. Asaph, sympathized with the Americans during the Revolution. During the summer of 1771, after a particularly stressful time in London, Franklin stayed with Shipley at his home in Twyford, England. He quickly revived and became a favorite of Shipley's children, all of whom wrote to him over the years. Here, in the relaxing country setting, Franklin began writing his autobiography. Writing from France, Franklin acknowledged Shipley's desire for an end to war. Benjamin Franklin to Jonathan Shipley, Passy, June 10, 1782. I received and read the letter from my dear and much respected friend with infinite pleasure. I long with you for the return of peace. After much occasion to consider the folly and mischiefs of a state of warfare, and the little or no advantage obtained even by those nations who have conducted it with the most success, I have been apt to think that there has never been or ever will be any such thing as a good war or a bad peace. You are happy as your years come on in having that dear and most amiable family about you. Four daughters, how rich. I have but one, and she necessarily detained from me at 1,000 leagues distance. I feel the want of that tender care of me which might be expected from a daughter and would give the world for one. With the utmost esteem, respect, and veneration, I am ever my dear friend, yours most affectionately, B. Franklin. Louis-Alexandre, Duc de la Roche-Guyon et de la Rochefoucauld, 1743-1792. While in France, Franklin became close friends with Rochefoucauld, a French nobleman. He was a prominent liberal politician and remained active during the French Revolution until a mob stoned him to death. In 1788, Franklin wrote this letter to Rochefoucauld, describing progress he has made on his autobiography. Benjamin Franklin to the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, Philadelphia, October 24, 1788. Your letter gave me the clearest and most satisfactory account of the present state of affairs in your country. You judge rightly that they must be interesting to me. I love France. I have 1,000 reasons for doing so, and whatever promotes or impedes her happiness affects me as if she were my mother. I hope all will end to the general advantage of the nation. I have begun already to employ my leisure time in completing the personal history, Franklin's autobiography, you mention. It is now brought down to my 50th year. What is to follow will be of more important transactions, but it seems to me that what is done will be of more general use to young readers, as exemplifying strongly the effects of prudent and imprudent conduct in the commencement of a life of business. B. Franklin. End layer 214. On the wall above the flip book, Mounted within a plexiglass case is an oval pastel portrait of Mary Polly Stevenson Hewson, circa 1770, artist unknown. She is a fair-haired woman, looking down to the side, and has a dark necklace around her neck. She wears a small, flat hat from which hangs a sheer veil that drapes her bodice. Text reads, Franklin loved Polly, 
the daughter of his London landlady, with all the tenderness, all the fondness of a father. When Polly was widowed in 1786, she moved to Philadelphia and was with him and his family when he died. Below the case and to the right is our touchable friend, Skuggs, busy inscribing a note with a quill pen. Please turn around 180 degrees and walk forward about 20 feet. Take care, a large pole is at about 10 feet along, straddling the wood surface of this area and the carpeted area beyond. On your right is some seating alongside a row of low panels that extend horizontally to the left. They display a timeline of Franklin's life. To listen to additional information contained in this timeline, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 215. Layer 215, Timeline. A two-part timeline of Franklin's life is detailed on two long, low, black panels. The first portion of the timeline is before you and stretches left and right. A seating area is along the other side of the timeline. As you move to the left about 10 feet, this portion of the timeline reads, 1706, born in Boston. 1716 to 1725, Franklin in his teens. Circa 1717, invents swimming fins. 1718, begins apprenticeship. 1722, silence do good letters. 1723, runs away, arrives in Philadelphia. 1724, first trip to London. 1726 to 1735, Franklin in his 20s. 1726, returns to Philadelphia, self-improvement plan. 1727, forms Junto. Circa 1728, son William born. 1729, buys Pennsylvania Gazette. 1730, common law marriage to Deborah Reed. 1731, founds Library Company of Philadelphia. 1732, son Francis born, poor Richard's Almanac. 1736 to 1745, Franklin in his 30s. 1736, son Francis dies, organizes Union Fire Company, prints New Jersey currency. 1740, printer for New Jersey. 1743, daughter Sarah born, American Philosophical Society. 1744, Pennsylvania Fireplace. 1746 to 1755, Franklin in his 40s. 1751, Pennsylvania Hospital, publishes his experiments in electricity. 1752, Kite Experiment, Mutual Insurance Company. 1753, Deputy Postmaster General, awarded Copley Medal. 1754, Join or Die Cartoon, Albany Plan. At this juncture, the first panel ends and the next begins in about eight feet, but now with seating available on the near side of the panel. 1756 to 1765, Franklin in his 50s. 1756, elected to the Royal Society of London, night watchman and street lighting. 
1757, Colonial Agent in London. 1758, publishes Way to Wealth, invents damper for stoves or chimneys. 1759, Honorary Doctor of Laws. 1760, chairs the Associates of Dr. Bray. 1762, invents glass harmonica, returns to Philadelphia. 1764, returns to London. 1765, Stamp Act passed. 1766 to 1775, Franklin in his 60s. 1770, colonial agent for Massachusetts. 1771, begins his autobiography. 1774, submits to Privy Council hearing, wife Deborah dies. 1775, returns to Philadelphia, appointed to Committee of Secret Correspondence. 1776 to 1785, Franklin in his 70s. 1776, signs Declaration of Independence, leaves for Paris. 1778, secures French alliance. 1779, accepts post as Minister to France. 1783, negotiates and signs Treaty of Paris, secures trade treaty with Sweden. 1784, debunks Mesmer. 1785, returns to Philadelphia, Governor of Pennsylvania, invents bifocals. 1786 to 1790, Franklin in his 80s. 1787, Delegate, Constitutional Convention, President, Pennsylvania Abolition Society. 1790, dies in Philadelphia. End layer 215. Now please turn to your left and proceed about 12 feet to a tall and wide plexiglass case mounted on a low platform. On display are two upholstered armchairs. Between them is a wood table with a chessboard on its surface. The chair at left in red fabric dates from circa 1765. It's made of mahogany, beech, and modern wool damask. Text explains, Originally owned by Benjamin Franklin, this French-style chair is from a set of at least four that Franklin owned and may have used in both Paris and London. The set descended in the family of Polly Stevenson Hewson, daughter of his London landlady. The chess set is French and was created from pearwood between 1750 and 1780. This item is a reproduction of the one originally owned by Benjamin Franklin. We learn that Franklin loved chess and played friendly yet competitive matches with numerous opponents throughout his life. The grandson of a friend in Paris wrote that Franklin's passion for late-night games was checked only by his supply of candles. The second armchair is French and dates to between 1770 and 1790. Made of beech, it was originally owned by Benjamin Franklin and its light-colored frame is upholstered in light and dark gold vertical stripes. This Louis XVI-style chair descended in the family of Polly Stevenson Hewson, daughter of Franklin's London landlady, with a history of ownership by Franklin. 
Please follow along the case to the right and around it to the left. In several feet, you'll come upon a plexiglass case that displays a 1786 booklet by Franklin, The Morals of Chess, in the Columbian Magazine and Monthly Miscellany. Text tells us that Franklin's essay on the game of chess, first published in a magazine, reveals his enthusiasm for the game and his belief that the skills cultivated in chess would be useful in the course of human life. Immediately above and behind the case is a video monitor with another animated program focused on Franklin's ongoing battle with gout and arthritis linked to excessive consumption of wine and red meat. The program will play on separate speakers, so you may wish to pause this recording while you enjoy the tale. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Immediately to the right is a table with three copies of documents that reflect Franklin's full life, including a chart of daily wine consumption in his household in France. For more information on these documents, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 216. Layer 216, Franklin's documents. Left to right, an account book for domestic expenses from 1783 to 1784. Franklin's busy lifestyle in France is documented in his daily household accounts from the period, recorded by hand by Jacques Fink, Benjamin Franklin's maître d'hôtel. Included are a full range of expenses, including costs for the copious amounts of food and wine bought for entertaining guests. Indeed, next is a chart of daily wine consumption for the month of September 1782. Such lists kept by members of Franklin's French household suggest the importance of wine and claret for daily dining. Finally, the third item on the table is an invitation to dinner at Passy, dating to 1783. Franklin established a small press in France and produced a variety of political and personal documents, including this printed invitation. It suggests his love of entertaining and socializing in and around his residence outside Paris. End layer 216. Move several feet to the right to arrive at an interactive touchscreen that allows you to play a video version of a favorite Franklin invention, the harmonica. On screen are the rims, in a range of colors, of nested glass bowls. Text notes that the harmonica's concept is based on the sound produced by running a wet finger around the rim of a glass. Franklin noted that, of all my inventions, the glass harmonica has given me the greatest personal satisfaction. Deborah likened its sound to the music of angels. Touching the middle of the screen will activate the harmonica, and you can choose from two recorded tunes listed left to right at the top of the screen. Yankee Doodle, God Save the King, and then Free Play, which allows you to touch the colored glass rims and produce your own melody. If you turn 90 degrees to the right, a plexiglass case in this corner has on display an original glass harmonica dated 1761 to 1762. 
The glass bowls are connected by a metal rod and the instrument rests within a dark wood case, about three feet long. Propped up on the harmonica is a musical composition created for the instrument. In 1778, Franklin's neighbor in France, Madame Brion, wrote Marche de Insurgent to celebrate a turning point for America in the Revolutionary War. Mozart and Beethoven also composed works for the instrument, though Franklin preferred simple Scottish airs. This concludes the second section of our tour. Please turn around 180 degrees and retrace your steps to the edge of the case displaying the two chairs and chess game. Turn left and move six feet on a slight angle to the right to reach a tall panel at the beginning of the next section on our tour, Ambitious and Rebellious. The audio description will begin automatically. Three. Ambitious and rebellious, approximately 17 minutes and 30 seconds. The panel at the start of this section is headed with large raised type, signifying the words, be frugal and industrious and you will be free. Additional text explains that, although Franklin's ambition and rebelliousness were judged as negative traits, he rose through the social and political ranks of 18th century society with extraordinary ease. His natural intelligence, hard work, diligence, and restless energy won him many friends in high places. He never hesitated, however, to counter powerful figures when he witnessed injustice and arbitrary authority. Accompanying this text is a symbol for this area, an ink ball with orange coloring on the pad. At the top, it has a narrow handle that connects to a broad and rounded padded bottom covered in leather. A pressman spreads ink on the padded bottom and then uses the ink ball to beat ink onto the type. You'll have a chance to handle an ink ball a bit later in this section of our tour. We will tour this area in a clockwise fashion, so now please turn to your left. Walk about six feet along the carpeted floor. Note that you will pass another round, wide pole on your right, straddling wood flooring on your right. Circle the pole on your right 180 degrees and walk forward just two feet to a five feet square display on Franklin's pen names. Two sides of the display tell us that the use of pseudonyms was common among 18th century writers. Throughout his life, Franklin used them, often humorously, in social and political commentary. Among the names he used were Abigail Twitterfield, Alice Addertongue, Americanus, Anthony Afterwit, Betty Diligent, Busy Body, Dr. Fatsides, Censorious, Farting, Friend to the Poor, A Good Conscience, Great Person, Historicus, Homespun, Hugo Grimm, Margaret Aftercast, Obadiah Plainman, Polly Baker, Rusticus, Sidi Mehmet Ibrahim, and Silence Do Good. Two other sides of the display are equipped with video screens and listening wands at about waist height at the left or right. Above, the screens feature images of three of Franklin's pen avatars, 
a woman in a bonnet, Silence Newgood, a young, well-dressed man, Richard Saunders, and an older man in a uniform, white curls poking out from under a wide military hat, the King of Prussia. At the bottom left of the screens is an inkwell with a quill pen protruding from it, followed by the words, move the quill to one of Franklin's pen names. Pick up one of the listening wands to hear each persona tell his or her story. You may want to pause this recording while you enjoy the stories. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Please return to the pole that straddles the carpeted and wood flooring and continue about seven feet with wood flooring on the right. Just to the right, you'll find an inset, narrow seating area, and a window designated by the frame of window panes. The wall covering on either side of the window features tiny images of ink balls. Hanging just above and beyond the window frame and out of reach is a blue ball. Text notes it is a reproduction of the sign of the blue ball, constructed of painted wood, tin, and iron. Franklin's father was a chandler, or candle and soap maker. The family's small house served as his shop, identified by the blue ball sign that hung outside. Chandler's added blue dye made from indigo to soap for its whitening effects on laundry. Beyond the blue ball, serving as a background panorama, is Peter Cooper's 1720 mural, the southeast prospect of the city of Philadelphia. This view depicts the skyline that Franklin saw when he arrived in Philadelphia in 1723. The city teemed with brick and wooden buildings topped by steeply pitched roofs. Docks and wharves served Philadelphia's rapidly growing maritime trade. Just to your right, a ledge extending from the wall. On it is a white-on-black map of the colonies, noting Franklin's trip from Boston to Philadelphia, 1723. An arrow shows the route Franklin traveled, heading north to south, curving through the Atlantic Ocean along the eastern coast of North America. For more information on Franklin's travels, Please press pause on your audio player, followed by 311. Layer 311, Franklin's trip. Text details Franklin's travel. Wednesday, September 25th. Franklin sails secretly from Boston to New York, spending three days at sea with fair wind. Saturday, September 28th. He arrives in New York, 300 miles from Boston, but fails to find work. Tuesday, October 1st. While sailing from New York for Perth Amboy, New Jersey, his ship encounters a squall that tears the sail and drives the boat upon Long Island. Anchored offshore, Franklin spends the night on the water, the storm spray drenching him. Wednesday, October 2nd. The weather clears early and the ship proceeds to Perth Amboy after 30 hours on the water. Franklin runs a fever and sweats the night away at an inn. Thursday, October 3rd. Franklin crosses the Raritan River by ferry and begins walking towards Burlington. Trudging through rain, he becomes fatigued and stays overnight at an inn. Friday, October 4th. Franklin continues walking 
and stays the night 8 to 10 miles out from Burlington at Dr. Brown's Inn. Saturday, October 5th. Having walked to Burlington, Franklin discovers that there will be no boats for four days and prepares to wait it out. Walking along the river that night, he encounters a boat going to Philadelphia and boards, but there being no wind, all the passengers have to row. Disorientated, they spend the night camping ashore. Sunday, October 6th. Once oriented, they set off for Philadelphia, arriving at the Market Street Wharf around 8 a.m. Franklin enters Philadelphia 400 miles from Boston with only a Dutch dollar and a few copper pence in his pocket. End layer 311. Moving right along the ledge is an interactive touchscreen exhibit. The program is also mounted on the wall above another wood window frame. When you tap the screen, a program begins which highlights the travails of traveling around the colonies in Franklin's time. You can choose to play out your journey from one of three perspectives of trades that Franklin explored. Cooper, illustrated by an image of a barrel. Clockmaker, under a drawing of a clock with Roman numerals. Or Chandler, under an etching of a glowing candle. After choosing one of these trades, you are given a fixed amount of money and a series of additional choices that take you on a simulated journey with unpredictable ends. For more detailed information about this exhibit, please contact a park ranger for additional assistance. For a brief description of one possible opportunity scenario, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 312. Layer 312, Seeking Opportunity Animation. For example, upon tapping the screen to begin, text reads, You are 21 years old and have just completed your multi-year apprenticeship in a trade paid for by your father's generosity. It is now time to seek your opportunity away from home. Tapping the screen again displays three black and white drawings across the middle of the screen illustrating three trades, Cooper, Clockmaker, and Chandler. Tapping the leftmost illustration for Cooper, a picture of several barrels appears on the left of the screen in front of a lithograph of Colonial Boston with rows of coins running along the bottom of the screen. Text reads, With only your Cooper Apprenticeship Freedom Papers and a small amount of savings, you've decided to make your way to Philadelphia, one of the fastest-growing cities in the colonies. It's a long trip that could take many days. At this point, you can choose to take a sloop to New York, which would take two days and cost 10 shillings, or you can choose to ride to Newport in the back of a friend's wagon for only four shillings. Selecting the sloop route, you're notified that you eat the last biscuits from home. Food costs four pence. Continuing, your ship is becalmed. You lose two days waiting for the winds to pick up. You arrive in Newport on the third day. By the end of the trip, you are coughing and have a severe fever. By the time you arrive in Philadelphia, you're too weak to work. The doctor diagnoses you with typhus. Your journey is over. End layer 312. From a position facing the touchscreen, turn to your right and move forward to a side wall. 
turn right and proceed about five feet. You'll note that the wall jogs out about a foot. On this section is a tall panel and text titled, Breaking with England. Franklin was seen as a reluctant revolutionary until he became convinced that the British treatment of the colonies was unjust. In 1774, the British accused Franklin of treason against the Crown for having leaked letters written by the Massachusetts lieutenant governor that criticized the Boston rebels. Humiliated before the British Privy Council, Franklin began to realize that compromise would not end the dispute between the colonies and the Crown. A year later, he left London for America and added his voice to the growing rebellion. On July 4, 1776, the Americans formally separated from Britain by adopting the Declaration of Independence, which Franklin helped draft. Moving along to the right, just two feet, you come to an inset area that allows you to observe British Privy Council members in the cockpit, a room named for its previous use, cockfighting along with a model of Benjamin Franklin. You may want to pause this recording while you enjoy the experience. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Continue to the right about six feet to an area that focuses on Franklin's profession as a printer. On a low ledge is a rectangular-shaped box with a handle at top. The box holds a section of metal type, and text notes that Printing was a demanding job that required physical strength. A form of type could weigh as much as 80 pounds. Try to lift this section of a form of type. Above the section of type is a video monitor that plays a short video depicting printers at work with equipment that Franklin might have used in the 18th century. Now it's your turn to try your hand as a printer's apprentice. Move three feet to your right to a touchscreen interactive that displays a video that allows you to set type and see your name appear on screen as a printed sheet. Text reads, Setting type accurately and elegantly was the most complex part of their training. At the base of the interactive, text invites you to tap the screen to set type and begin your apprenticeship. Seen from above, the image on the screen features a frame within which type can be set. Visitors can choose type to print their name by touching letters of the alphabet. Next, a hand appears grasping an ink ball being pressed on the type, coating it with ink. The printer inserts a blank sheet, and the sheet and typeset page then slides up and back. The result is displayed on the screen. A journal of a voyage from Gibraltar to Georgia by you. Just to the right of the video interactive, a monitor is mounted on the wall, lodged on a shelf. It displays another animated program, Franklin as a young printer in London. Text lets us know that in his autobiography, Franklin wrote about his early days as a printer working in a London printing shop. Unlike his co-workers, he chose a healthier, more frugal diet and, as a result, claimed to be a stronger and more productive worker. In the animation, we see a young Ben Franklin in the foreground in a basement print shop wearing a white printer's apron, while behind him several other young men stumble around and grimace while drinking pints of beer as they attempt to work. 
You may want to pause this recording while you enjoy the program. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Feel free to reach to the right of the monitor and look for Skugs the Squirrel, wearing a printer's apron and holding two ink balls. Below, on a waist-height ledge, is a flip book. Just above it, text reads, A Good and Faithful Helpmate. Deborah worked alongside her husband as their business grew. Like most women of her class, Deborah was not formally educated, but her daily entries in the shop book show her close involvement with the business. Franklin wrote that Deborah assisted me cheerfully in my business. Even after Franklin's retirement in 1748 and during his numerous years abroad, Deborah continued to manage the Franklin family's finances. For more information about this flip book exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 313. Layer 313, Helpmate Flipbook, A Good and Faithful Helpmate. Memorandum Book. Franklin left Philadelphia in early April 1757 to begin his journey to London, where he remained until 1762. In his absence, Deborah Franklin managed the shop and household. This memorandum book shows Deborah keeping track of both personal and business expenses. Accounts of the time were recorded with columns on the right of each page, indicating pounds, shillings, and pence, British currency, even when payments were made using other forms of currency, like Pennsylvania money, Dutch money, or Spanish coins. April 3, 1757. Paid to Mr. Brumag for my stay. A stay was a woman's undergarment, later known as a corset. Send to Dr. Bonds their counts as Mr. Franklin directed me. Phineas Bond was a co-founder of the Pennsylvania Hospital. Counts equals accounts. Paid Mr. Surmame the balance of a sword. Balance, what was due on the purchase of the sword, likely a sword Franklin brought with him to London. Paid for bringing back home a horse due. Due was used in accounts to mean ditto or also. The horse must have wandered off again. April 3rd, 1757. Paid Dutch money for calico for Sally's. Dutch currency, calico, a plain woven cotton textile. Paid the milk woman. June 29th, 1757. Paid Mr. Bry for linen. We owed him for as per account. Linen. Paid the poor tax 15 and fire company 1-6 paid to Nabor Greenleaf for a forfeit at the hospital. Fire company dues. Late hospital dues. Paid to Mr. Normandy cash. Paid the French master due. Sally may have been taking French lessons from this French teacher. June 29, 1757. Paid to mother the order of swans. Laid aught foolishly and generously for four yards of cambric for myself. Paid Mr. Gert for two pairs of shoes Sally had last winter. Two yards and quarter of fine holland tape three 
Pence. Deborah's mother. Swan was a merchant who sold fabric. Deborah regretted spending money on herself and Sally. This may have been a humorous observation or maybe a reminder to herself to be more careful about spending money. Cambric is a lightweight, fine cotton cloth. Shop book. The shop book was used to record the daily activity that occurred in Franklin's printing office and bookstore. Here we see both Benjamin and Deborah's handwriting, allowing us to know which one of them was keeping shop at any given time on any given day. In addition to books, the store sold stationery and assorted dry goods. James Jordan, D.R., or a Bible and common prayer book. D.R. is the abbreviation for debtor. In this case, James Jordan was in Franklin's debt for the items he purchased, a Bible and a book of common prayer. Mr. Robart Gross, D.R., for a choir of post paper and a bundle of quills by Mr. I Know Not. Choir, a choir of paper is 24 sheets. Mr. I Know Not, Deborah does not know the name of the person who delivered the paper and quills. Mr. Benezet, one ream paper. Anthony Benezet was an early Quaker abolitionist and Franklin's friend. A ream of paper is about 500 sheets. Stephen Potts, DR, for cash. Potts, Franklin's favorite bookbinder, borrowed cash. Anne Chand, DR, for rise. Rice. Mr. Hood, DR, for almanac. Poor Richard's Almanac. Israel Pemberton, Jr., D.R., for Bill of Lading Book. Israel Pemberton, Jr. was a wealthy Quaker and local businessman. Bill of Lading Book contained forms used for shipping merchandise. Mother, D.R., for Pound of Tea. Deborah's mother either bought or borrowed a pound of tea. Brother Croker, D.R., for a brush. John Croker was married to Deborah's sister, Frances. Antho Wilkinson, DR, for half pound chocolate, abbreviation for Anthony. End layer 313. Turn right at the corner of the area. A tall panel reads Building a Business. Arriving almost penniless in Philadelphia in 1723, Franklin worked to establish himself as a printer. In time, he founded his own newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, and published Poor Richard's Almanac. He communicated his ideas through these popular publications while expanding his network of friends and business and political connections, both in the colonies and England. His ambition was rewarded with government printing contracts and a valuable position as deputy postmaster for North America. With hard work, Franklin saved enough money to retire from printing at 42. Please continue to the right about four feet. Inset within the wall and behind plexiglass are two original ink balls, circa 1740. While the wood handles appear to be intact, the covering of the pads is black and cracked. A text panel reads... In the printing process, ink balls were used to apply ink to the metal type. A pressman would dab and roll the thick, tacky ink uniformly onto the type before each pull of the press. 
and another few feet to the right on a table that juts out into the area is a pair of ink balls that you can manipulate on a plate of type. Finally, just to the right of the ink balls is a plexiglass case that includes several examples of Franklin's early printing and publishing. Text tells us that in 1730, Franklin opened a printing shop where he did little jobs for customers, such as printing blank forms, broadsides, pamphlets, and books. He built a reputation, however, for his own newspaper and almanacs, which, compared to his competition, were entertaining and sometimes provoking. These publications helped him draw business to his printing and bookshop. Included in this display is an edition of the Pennsylvania Gazette from 1765. Please turn around 180 degrees and walk about six feet on the wooden flooring and turn left. You're at the opposite side of the opening panel to this section. This side features a six-foot-tall reproduction of Robert Feek's Portrait of Benjamin Franklin, circa 1738 to 1746. Franklin is portrayed as a man in his 30s with thick golden curls and dressed in a black waistcoat with a white shirt, frills at the front and at the cuffs. Text reports that, this is the earliest known portrait of Franklin, painted when he was between the ages of 32 and 40. Feek depicted him in a traditional pose for a wealthy gentleman. Franklin retired as a printer at 42, financially free to follow his interest in science. Now please move three feet to the left and turn right onto the carpeted area. Turn to your left and move forward six feet on the carpeting and around the table, following it on your left to a table that displays another interactive activity that helps you experience a bit of Franklin's, a.k.a. Poor Richard's, wisdom. A panel reads, Poor Richard Says. Franklin borrowed many of the proverbs and aphorisms found in Poor Richard's Almanac from the Bible, classical authors, and collections of readily available proverbs. Yet in recrafting many older sayings, Franklin brought them new life. Did he himself listen to poor Richard's advice? Sometimes, sometimes not. Franklin published these sayings. Can you complete them? This is a mechanical interactive display that challenges you to match the beginnings and endings of famous Franklin sayings. Listen for the congratulatory huzzah will sound when all the lights glow green. For more information about this tactile exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 314. Layer 314, Sayings Interactive. Within a wood box, eight revolves are featured in two vertical rows. On the left, each revolve notes the beginning of a famous Franklin saying. On the right, the corresponding revolve features several possible endings. When the two images match, a green light to the right glows. Otherwise, a red light brightens. The top left revolve lists three phrases. Fish and visitors. He that sows thorns. And men and melons. The top right revolve reveals the following end phrases. Stink in three days. Should not go barefoot. And are hard to know. 
and you match the start of the saying to its appropriate end. The next set of phrases has, on the left, one today, nothing but money, and genius without education. The phrases on the right include, is worth two tomorrows, is sweeter than honey, and is like silver in the mine. The third set of beginning phrases includes early to bed and early to rise, great alms giving, and a light purse. On the right, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, lessens no man's living, and is a heavy curse. And the fourth set of phrases at left include three may keep a secret, you may be more happy than princes, and don't throw stones at your neighbors. On the right, if two of them are dead, if you will be more virtuous, and if your own windows are glass. End layer 314. Now please move several feet to your right and turn left. Move just two feet forward, and on your left is a plexiglass case displaying additional artifacts from Franklin's time as a printer and as a postmaster. In the case are two items, a woodcut of a cartoon. It features a post rider blowing a horn. It appeared in a Boston newspaper during the time that Franklin was deputy postmaster general. The rider may have been a caricature of Franklin. The second item is a block-like contraption with three overlapping and numbered dials, an odometer, or wayweiser, possibly designed by Benjamin Franklin, circa 1763. Text relates that, while traveling to inspect post offices from New Jersey to New England, Franklin used this odometer to measure the distance between postal stations. This odometer, which is registered 1,600 miles, was attached to the wheel of his carriage. Moving just two feet to the right, you'll come to another plexiglass case that contains a stone monolith about one and a half feet high, eight inches wide, and several inches deep. On its front, a shield is carved out and three round protrusions are its center, left to right. It's a mile marker. Franklin surveyed post roads while traveling to inspect post offices. Mile markers were used along major post roads to let travelers know they were on the right track, as well as the distance remaining to their destination. Finally, just to the right is a vertical video monitor on a table that features a map of the colonies that illustrates the growth of Franklin's printing network. Lines depict the connections between Franklin's printing shops. A horse and rider shows the postal network links that Franklin used. Text reports that making connections. Franklin financed printing shops from New England to the Caribbean, removing potential rivals from the Philadelphia market and expanding his own market penetration. When Franklin became deputy postmaster for the colonies in 1753, he increased the range and efficiency of the postal system. Franklin's printing and postal networks served to increase both his business and his influence. His position as deputy postmaster meant that his newspaper benefited from free postage, lowering its cost to the consumer and increasing his circulation and his influence. 
Franklin's printing and postal networks enable him to increase his business and his influence and to retire at 42. The growth of Franklin's influence is an example of his doing well by doing good. This concludes the third section of our tour. Now please turn around 180 degrees and move forward about six feet. You'll come to the tall beginning panel on the left for the next section of our tour, Motivated to Improve. The audio description will begin automatically. Four, Motivated to Improve, approximately 11 minutes. The tall panel before you features an image of a green bucket, a fire bucket to be precise, and asks, what good have I done today? In large, raised type. Text continues, Franklin believed in bettering both himself and the world around him. His sharp eye perceived room for improvement everywhere. He contributed useful innovations such as a better street lamp design, the Franklin stove, and bifocals. In 1743, he prepared a detailed plan for a society to promote useful knowledge that became the American Philosophical Society. He fostered the creation of public institutions such as lending libraries, universities, firefighting and fire insurance companies, and schools for enslaved children. Now please walk to the left and then turn right to the side of the panel. Proceed straight ahead for about 10 feet to approach a small seating area at the left and an animated program on a wall-mounted monitor directly in front of you. The background is covered with images of tiny fire buckets. You'll hear the audio from the video, a recorded story, The Window. It will play on separate speakers, so you may wish to pause this recording while you enjoy the tale. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Immediately to your right, on a table, is another Turn the Wheel interactive display. It's labeled Personal Virtues. Reflecting back later in life, Franklin wrote, As I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. Franklin tried to master these 12 virtues. Can you find his definition? This is a mechanical interactive display that challenges you to match a particular virtue with a choice of sayings that reflect that virtue. For more information about this exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 411. Layer 411, Virtues Interactive. Within a wood box, eight revolves are featured in two vertical rows. On the left, each revolve notes three virtues. On the right, the corresponding revolve features a saying that reflects a particular virtue. When the two ideas match, a green light to the right glows. Otherwise, a red light brightens. The top left revolve lists three phrases, order, temperance, and moderation. The top right revolve reveals the following sayings. Let all things have their places. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. And avoid extremes, forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. 
Can you match the virtue with its corresponding saying? The next set of phrases has on the left silence, chastity, and cleanliness. The phrases on the right include speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Rarely use venery but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of reputation. And tolerate no uncleanness in body, clothes, or habitation. The third set of virtues, resolution, justice, and industry. On the right, resolve to perform what you ought, Perform without fail what you resolve. Wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. And the fourth set of virtues at left include tranquility, frugality, and sincerity. On the right, be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents, common or unavoidable. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, i.e., waste nothing. Use not hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly, and if you speak, speak accordingly. End layer 411. An electronic interactive display is mounted on the wall here, a magic square said to have been developed by Franklin. It's a box filled with dozens of small boxes organized in vertical and horizontal rows. Numbers are displayed in the blocks, and the goal is to rearrange the numbers so that each row adds up to the same number. Just another few feet to the right and forward, a text panel in a plexiglass box lets us know that Franklin was a voracious reader. Franklin wrote, From a child I was fond of reading, and all the little money that came into my hands was ever laid out in books. He often borrowed books from others, which he was careful to return soon and clean. The wall behind the plexiglass case is adorned as a packed bookshelf. To the right, a tall panel reminds us that Franklin was motivated to improve. Self-improvement. With only two years of formal schooling, Franklin valued self-improvement and was determined to find ways that he could better himself. In 1727, Franklin and a group of fellow tradesmen formed a club, the Junto, to improve their minds and strengthen their community. Among the group's contributions was the Library Company of Philadelphia, America's first subscription library, offering its members access to a larger selection of books than they could afford as individuals. You may note our friend, Skuggs the Squirrel. He's perched at the top of the panel, wearing bifocals and reading a tiny volume. Continue to your right, just another few feet, to a corner of this area, and turn right. Text on the wall here details Franklin's improvements. When Franklin saw a need, he often created or adapted a device to satisfy it. Visitors noted the useful curiosities they saw at his house. 
He never patented his inventions, believing that as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours, and this we should do freely and generously. As an example, an additional text block details the 1760 Iron Pennsylvania Fireplace, designed by Benjamin Franklin. Franklin designed a fireplace that was safer and more effective than open hearth fireplaces. Unfortunately, it did not perform consistently. He worked to improve the design throughout his life. Stoves based on his original model are known as Franklin stoves. Just to the right, within an inset, you may notice a wire stretched across at about knee height, is a framed silent video program that suggests a view through a fogged up window. An image of a middle-aged Franklin is at the bottom. It illustrates several of Franklin's inventions. You'll hear a chime as each one is depicted. Franklin appears on a step stool reaching up to a high bookshelf. He employs a long pole, a grabbing device, to allow him to select a particular volume. Next, Franklin frowns while above his image a letter's script seems blurred. A pair of spectacles appears, clearing up the image. But then the spectacles develop a horizontal line across the lens at the center. The top of the lens affords a clear view of a distant building. Indeed, in a plexiglass case at about waist height and several feet to the right is a pair of bifocals dating to the late 18th century. Text reads, Franklin invented bifocals by cutting the lenses of two pairs of spectacles, preserving half of each kind associated in the same circle. Thus he could move my eyes up or down as I want to see distinctly far or near. On the wall is a video monitor with a text block that reads, Brave Men at Fires. In cities where houses were side by side, a fire in one could destroy whole neighborhoods. Franklin suggested that Philadelphia organize teams of firemen like those found in Boston and London. In 1736, Franklin and 19 of his neighbors started the Union Fire Company. They purchased an engine and hooks and ladders and supplied leather water buckets and salvage bags to carry household goods to safety. The animated video depicts an 18th century structure in flames, while citizen firefighters manually pump water to a hose, and others form a line to pass fire buckets filled with water toward the fire. As you hear the audio from the video, Brave Men at Fires, on separate speakers, you may wish to pause this recording while you enjoy the tale. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Continuing several feet to the right, you'll come to a carpeted area and a series of five tall and narrow inset cases. The first contains a reproduction of a fire bucket from the late 18th, early 19th century. When Franklin helped found the city's first fire brigade, there were no fire hydrants. Volunteers owned buckets and would stand in a line and relay buckets of water drawn from a neighborhood well to fill the tank of the fire engine. The side of the bucket is emblazoned with the words, Library Company of Philadelphia. 
Next is a plaque in the shape of a shield that features four hands forming a square, each hand grasping the wrist of the next. It is a circa 1771 Philadelphia contribution ship fire mark, based on the original design attributed to Richard or Samuel Parker, hands, and Joseph Rakestraw, shield. In 1752, Benjamin Franklin and his friends founded the nation's oldest mutual fire insurance company, the Philadelphia Contribution Ship. The company issued fire marks to identify insured houses. This fire mark features the seal of the Contribution Ship, being four hands united. The third in said area displays a box with a slot in its front at the mouth of a drawing of a lion. Its text says... Gentlemen are requested to deposit in the lion's mouth the titles of such books as they may wish to have imported. The tin lion's mouth box dates from circa 1750. Library company members helped select books for the collection, leaving their suggestions in the lion's mouth. The library's selection was broad, unlike most other collections which focused on religion. Members in good standing could check out books to read at home. The next inset exhibits, at left, reproductions of several lecture tickets from 1765 to 1771, along with playing cards. Tickets like these served as a receipt for tuition at the Philadelphia Academy, now University of Pennsylvania. Franklin, as co-founder and trustee, likely enjoyed the fact that some enterprising students recycled their tickets as playing cards on the unused side. To the right is a booklet by Franklin, Some Account of the Pennsylvania Hospital from its first rise to the beginning of the fifth month, called May 1754. This booklet, created by the hospital's board of directors, explains how the hospital was established. Designed as a fundraising tool, it includes a list of donations and a contribution form on the last page for potential donors. And the last inset area displays another booklet by Franklin, Proposals Relating to the Education of Youth in Pennsylvania, from 1749. Text reads, Franklin believed that the aim of education is to serve mankind, one's country, friends, and family. In this pamphlet, he proposed establishing Philadelphia's first institution of higher learning, along with a suggested curriculum of study, diet, and exercise. From a position facing the insets, please turn around 180 degrees and walk forward about 8 feet on a slight diagonal to the right. You'll come to a table at waist height that features four touchscreen video monitors mounted within the tabletop. Each monitor tells the story of one of Franklin's civic improvements. For more information about this exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 412. Layer 412, Franklin's Civic Improvements. The screens display a street-by-street -street map of central Philadelphia. On one, touching the screen reveals an animated Franklin walking on from the right. Text appears, There being no provision for a complete education of youth, I drew up a proposal for establishing an academy. 
The first step I took was to include a number of friends. You may hear Franklin shout, Yay! I started a subscription for opening and supporting an academy. The scholars increased, so we looked for a piece of property on which to build. I have had the pleasure of seeing a number of these educated youth serve in public office. Touching the screen again results in a cascade of black graduation caps. Text appears, and become ornaments to their country. On another screen, words appear, Pennsylvania Hospital, the best means of relieving the distressed. Touching the screen results in windows opening, revealing women and others in distress. Words appear, observing the distress of those who came to Philadelphia for the advice of physicians, and how difficult it was for them to find suitable lodgings. A friend of mine had the idea of establishing a hospital for the reception and cure of the sick. A group of men gather in a meeting. I not only subscribed myself, but engaged heartily in gathering subscriptions from others. To pay for medicine, a subscription was started among charitable widows and other good women. Women in elegant gowns appear. A thermometer's mercury slowly rises to the top. The subscription soon enabled us to carry the design forward. A convenient and handsome building was soon erected and flourishes to this day. Pennsylvania Hospital, founded 1751. Finally, a caduceus, a symbol of medicine, appears. A staff with two entwined snakes and two wings at the top. When touched, it multiplies and tumbles around the screen. A third screen features the street grid, but with water lapping against the city at the bottom of the screen. Words appear, the Library Company of Philadelphia, my first project of a public nature. Idle men appear on the street corners. So few were the readers, and the majority of us so poor. There was not a good bookseller's shop south of Boston, and those who loved reading had to send for their books from England. I proposed starting a public subscription library. Cheers rise up. I gathered 50 subscribers of 40 shillings each, and we obtained a charter. This was the mother of all North American subscription libraries. The library was imitated by other towns. Slips of paper with the names of books appear, as does the Lion's Mouth Depository. Slide your request into the Lion's Mouth. Text appears on the screen. And reading became fashionable, and our people better instructed than people in other countries. Small books then tumble around the screen. The fourth screen also depicts the street scene near the water. Words appear, Pennsylvania Militia, for the security of the province. The image of colonists at war with Native Americans is at the top left. Text continues, there being no provision for defense, bringing us into greater danger. I determined to try a voluntary association of the people. The subscribers were upwards of 10,000. These formed themselves into companies and regiments. The women, by subscription, provided silk colors. Lines of well-appointed soldiers appear. Women swoop by with flags on long poles. I proposed a lottery to pay for building a battery and furnishing it with cannon. At right, a box appears labeled Philadelphia Lottery for Militia, 
and text suggests buy a lottery ticket by sliding a coin into the box. A cannon then appears on screen and fires a cannonball to great clapping and cheering. End layer 412. This concludes the fourth section of our tour. Please turn around 180 degrees away from the side of the video monitor table closest to the five inset displays. Walk forward about six feet to a plexiglass case and the next section of our tour, curious and full of wonder. The audio description will begin automatically. Five, curious and full of wonder, approximately 18 minutes, 30 seconds. Mounted on the wall, papered with images of tiny white kites, is a copy of a diploma-like membership certificate for Duc de Rochefoucauld, France, from the American Philosophical Society, 1786. Text explains, In 1743, Franklin wrote, A proposal for promoting useful knowledge among the British plantations in America, the founding document for the American Philosophical Society. Today, as Franklin proposed, the headquarters for this international network of scientists remains in Philadelphia. Franklin exchanged information about a wide range of curiosities with hundreds, even thousands of correspondents. In the plexiglass case here are examples of Franklin's connections with the scientific community. One example is the book, Transactions of the American Philosophical Society, 1769 to 1771. With this publication, Americans contributed to the international scientific community. Members observed the transit of Venus in 1769 from various locations, and the data was used to calculate the distance between the planets and the sun. Just to your right is a table that juts out several feet, Please move to the front of the table. A tall panel mounted on the wall provides some context for this section. Curious and full of wonder, scientific community. Growing up during the Age of Enlightenment, Franklin applied the reason-based scientific method set out by Isaac Newton and others. His electrical experiments launched him into an international network of men, and some women, who worked in fields today known as physics, chemistry, biology, botany, and paleontology. To share and exchange such knowledge, Franklin proposed a society to be called the American Philosophical Society, which remains today a world-renowned institution headquartered in Philadelphia. At the front of the table, you'll find an actual microscope that you may wish to use, a text card mounted on the wall above the table reads, The Microscope. In 1751, Franklin wrote of his admiration for the microscope, which has opened to us a world utterly unknown to the ancients. There are very few substances in which it does not show something curious and unexpected. He observed blood cells, peacock feathers, and bones, commenting that they were the most remarkably entertaining objects. Mounted on the wall is a video monitor that shows a greatly enlarged image of material that is under the microscope. You can rotate the turntable under the microscope to examine materials like cork, a butterfly wing, or human blood cells that Franklin saw through his microscope and listen as he describes his impressions. 
As you listen on separate speakers, you may wish to pause this recording. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Immediately to the right of the microscope, within a plexiglass case, are two additional scientific artifacts that fascinated Franklin. A silver-plated tea caddy dating from 1771 and a mastodon tooth fossil. The tea caddy is one of two plated canisters Franklin purchased at Sheffield in England and sent to his wife, Deborah, in Philadelphia. He had visited the factory where he witnessed a new technology for silver plating copper. The tooth, found at Franklin Court in 1959, likely was among a group of fossils sent to Franklin in London in 1767. Franklin found the fossils extremely curious. Discovered near the Ohio River, they came from a mastodon, an ancient elephant-like creature. Just to the right of the plexiglass case is a video monitor that displays six short videos featuring young people with two listening wands on the left and right along the front edge of the table. You may note the shift in flooring from carpet to wood. The opening screen notes that Franklin was part of a global scientific network. Choose a topic to learn more. The screen displays six narrow vertical images labeled botany, volcanoes, fossils, silkworms, storms, and transit of Venus. Touching any image will activate a video on the given topic. Once again, as you listen to the listening wands, you may wish to pause this recording. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Now, please turn around 180 degrees and walk about 10 feet, straddling the carpet and wood division to a tall panel on the left. Go just past it and turn to the left to the front of the panel. You may note an actual kite suspended above. The panel reads in large raised type, A Thirst for Knowledge. From the time he was a boy to his very last days, Franklin delighted in learning new things. He attracted many friends who read, experimented, and debated the big scientific questions of the day. He closely observed the natural world, frequently sharing his findings and the sheer wonders of discovery with others. His curiosity and wonderment mirrored the ideals of the Enlightenment. Move around to the other side of the panel to view a copy of a painting depicting Franklin, his long gray hair must, reaching out toward a key dangling from a string, his hand almost touching the key and a spark between them. In the background, dark clouds loom amid streaks of lightning. The painting, created circa 1816 by Benjamin West, is entitled Benjamin Franklin Drawing Electricity from the Sky. Text tells us that, in this small portrait study, Franklin's friend West dramatically depicted the 1752 kite experiment at the moment when a spark of natural electricity would have passed through the key and jumped to Franklin's raised knuckle. Turn around 180 degrees and walk forward on the wood flooring about 15 feet to a tall plexiglass case on a platform and a tall panel to the left. It reads, Electrical Experiments. 
Franklin was fascinated by electricity and devoted much of his time, after he retired, to studying its properties. His kite experiment was only one of his many electrical inquiries. He published his experiments and corresponded with other electricians in the colonies and in Europe. He coined the terms battery, positive charge, and negative charge, and discovered new ways to generate, store, and deploy electricity. His design and promotion of the use of lightning rods helped prevent untold numbers of structural fires. Within the case, a green glass bell jar about a foot high sits on a wood platform. A smaller jar sits next to it. Created in the second half of the 18th century, it is a double-acting pneumatic air pump originally owned by Benjamin Franklin. This air pump from Franklin's home laboratory suggests his close ties with the scientific community in England. It was designed by George Adams Sr. of London, creator of some of the finest scientific instruments of the 18th century. Take a step to the right, and you'll notice on a low platform our friend Skuggs the Squirrel, holding a tiny version of a narrow, clear, cylindrical object, a static tube. An actual static tube, about a foot long, is available for you to examine. It's mounted on a wood platform to the right. We learn from text that enthusiastic natural philosophers, the 18th century term for scientists, such as Franklin, would often demonstrate electrical experiments as entertaining party tricks. Glass tubes were rubbed with wool or fur to produce an electrical charge. You can try your hand at it too. The tube is covered by another tube two inches wide that you can rub along the glass back and forth. Underneath the tube are small glass coverings containing objects like a tiny feather. What do you imagine will happen when static electricity is created while rubbing the tube? Listen for tiny clicks. Just above the static tube is a glass case inset within the wall. It displays a wood cabinet filled with five rows of glass jars, seven in each row. They might be mistaken for a case of milk bottles. The seven jars in each row are connected at the top by a metal rod. Within each bottle are additional metal strips. They are an electrical battery of Leiden jars dating from the 1760s and originally owned by Benjamin Franklin. Leiden jars, the world's first batteries, could store and transport the electrical charge produced by a static generator. Franklin grouped a number of jars into what he described as a battery, a military term. By multiplying the number of holding vessels, a stronger charge could be stored and more power would be available on discharge. The next item on display to the right is another interactive turn-the-wheel box that allows you to test your knowledge of electrical matters. Benjamin Franklin introduced several new words into our scientific vocabulary, including battery, positive and negative, conductor, and discharge. Scientists around the world soon adopted these words, and they are still used today. Franklin coined these terms. Can you define them? This is a mechanical interactive display that challenges you to match an electrical term with its definition. 
For more information about this exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 511. Layer 511, Electrical Terms Interactive. Within a wood box, eight items are featured in two vertical rows. This interactive is a bit different from the others. On the left, each stationary item simply lists one term. On the right, the corresponding revolve features the term's definition. When the two ideas match, a green light to the right glows. Otherwise, a red light brightens. The top left sign reads, Battery. The top right revolve reveals possible definitions. A device to store electricity. A unit of electrical measurement. Or, to charge with electricity. Can you match the term with its definition? The next set has on the left, positive-negative. The definitions on the right include, describes matter with more or less electrical charge than normal, the sources of electricity, and a sudden charge or discharge from an electrically charged object. The third set features conductor on the left. On the right, lacking electrical charge material that allows electricity to pass through, and material that does not allow electricity to pass through. And the fourth set lists, at left, discharge. On the right, matter with less electrical charge than normal, a primitive device used to store electricity, and to remove the electrical energy from something. End layer 511. Moving just another few feet to the right, you'll come to another inset for a video of lightning flashes in a dark sky behind glass. Also on display is a structure reminiscent of a two-story dollhouse with a steep gabled roof and two towers on the left and right. The towers are identical except for a metal rod protruding from the top of the tower at left. The construction is a thunder house from the late 18th century. Text explains, After Franklin invented the lightning rod, thunder houses were used to demonstrate the value of his concept. When a spark hit an ungrounded rod, the thunder house, filled with gunpowder, exploded. With a grounded rod, the spark passed through harmlessly. Above the house, on a glass shelf, is a metal rod, a director rod with a glass or wooden handle. The rod is used to safely manipulate or work with static electricity. Continuing to the right, you'll find a video monitor that presents a demonstration of a thunderhouse effect. Text reads, Grounded versus ungrounded. Franklin's experiments demonstrated the importance of grounding a lightning rod. Grounded rods were, in Franklin's words, protective devices. Ungrounded rods, on the other hand, were used for studying thunderstorm electricity. The video pictures a thunder house with an ungrounded lightning rod. When the rod is sparked manually or by the negative charges in the air with positive charges in the ground, the house explodes. Listen for the explosions. When the rod is grounded, a chain is shown linking the rod down the side of the house to a post in the ground. 
a spark or lightning, is distributed safely to the ground. A glass case is below the monitor. It displays a faded copy of Franklin's Experiments and Observations on Electricity, published in London in 1769. A caption tells us that Franklin described his electrical experiments, including the proposal to test the hypothesis that lightning was natural electricity, in a series of letters published in this pamphlet. The work soon led to Franklin being widely known in the scientific world. Move just two feet to the right to the corner of this room of Franklin's house. Turn right and move forward several feet. You'll pass a window frame on your left. Just past it is a tall panel headed with the words Maritime Observations. Franklin crossed the Atlantic eight times during his life, voyages that provided him with ample opportunity to observe the ocean and weather. His charting of the Gulf Stream contributed to an understanding of how the ocean's currents could affect global trade. Because he was interested in improving travel to make it more efficient, comfortable, and convenient, he imagined various ways to streamline vessels for speedier voyages. Just to the right is a tactile experience on a table at waist height that may be of interest. Above a label that states, Please Touch, is a metal soup spoon, and to its right, a divided soup bowl. Text reports that eating soup on board a ship could be messy. To remedy this, Franklin proposed soup dishes in divisions, like a set of small bowls united together, each containing an amount sufficient for one person. For then, when the ship should make a sudden heel, the soup would not, in a body, flow over one side, but would be retained in the separate divisions. To the right of these touchable items is a 1786 illustration of a divided soup bowl. Franklin likely sketched this and other illustrations for his maritime observations, all of which were subsequently engraved for publication. To the right, mounted on the wall, is an animated video that tells of chasing a whirlwind. Franklin was fascinated by whirlwinds and exchanged letters about them with some of his scientific correspondents. He described this dramatic encounter in 1755 in one of several letters later published in his well-known Experiments and Observations. The video begins with four horses seen from behind with colonial gentlemen, Franklin and three others, astride. A cone-like funnel of wind appears Franklin investigates. If you'd like to enjoy the video, you may wish to pause this recording. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. On the wall above the monitor is a copy of a map of what is now the eastern United States with a broad swath noted in the Atlantic Ocean reaching from the Carolinas north of Bermuda and on out to sea. The chart is labeled Remarque sur la navigation de Terre-Neuve à New York afin d'éviter les courants et les bas fonds. Chart of the Gulf Stream, developed in Paris in 1783. We learn that Franklin charted the Gulf Stream with his cousin, Timothy Folger, a Nantucket whaling captain. 
This accurate chart soon became a valuable tool for helping ship captains sail within the Gulf Stream and thus reduce the lengthy ocean crossing. Now, please turn right, move forward about six feet, and turn left. You'll now be on a carpeted surface. On your left is a table with a touchscreen interactive video exhibit on maritime designs. You may also want to note that a seating area is available about six feet behind you. On the screen are various papers depicting ship designs. Atop the papers is a compass with two lengths, each about six inches long, connected at one end by a pivoting joint. The screen asks visitors to shuffle the papers and choose a drawing. For more information about this exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 512. Layer 512, Maritime Designs Interactive. Double tap a drawing to begin. One drawing is of the outline of a double-hulled boat. Tapping it reveals it to be a double ship. Franklin admired the outriggers used by Pacific Islanders. He observed that twin-hulled vessels carried no ballast, so they were fast, light, and stable. Video depicts a modern twin-hulled ship cruising a bay. Another paper shows the design of a swimming anchor. Franklin proposed setting a kite-like anchor to slow the forward motion of a ship. The swimming anchor slowed and steadied the ship in high winds and raging seas. A third paper depicts the design of a kind of large pulley wheel. Franklin hauled his boat with half the effort by walking between two stumps. This clever technique was a sort of block and tackle. The squeak you may hear is an iron pulley demonstrating the action Franklin envisioned. Another page depicts the profile of a boat with canisters within on one side. Text reads, Propelling vessels by air and water. Franklin imagined a boat propelled by pressurized water and air. An animation shows two individuals pumping a lever on a boat, followed by video of a modern jet ski. Finally, tapping on the profile of a ship with crisscross planking on its hull reveals text, a more secure method of planking. Franklin reasoned that ships constructed with diagonal planks would be nearly watertight. Today, a similar technique is used in some wooden vessels. A large wooden ship is shown with its planks set on angles. End layer 512. Now please circle around the table to a position facing the table, turn right and immediately left, and continue forward following the table and then a low ledge on your left. Several feet forward, you'll come to a monitor mounted on the wall that displays an animated video, swimming by kite. Centuries before windsurfing, Franklin discovered he could harness the power of the wind with his kite and be pulled effortlessly across a mile-wide pond. The video begins with a red kite floating against the light blue-green sky. The animated Franklin holds a stick with a string attached to the kite while floating in the sea on his back. At the end of the brief video, Franklin is bumped underwater by a speedy vessel. His red kite 
floats atop the water. If you'd like to enjoy the video, you may wish to pause this recording. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Immediately to the right, a table juts out from the wall with an angled surface. On it is a pair of swim paddles with a sign reading, please touch. You can fit your hands within the loops of the two roughly oval shapes. Text reads, When I was a boy, Franklin recalled to a friend late in life, I made two oval pallets. They much resembled a painter's pallets. I also fitted to the soles of my feet a kind of sandals. He swam faster, but found the paddles difficult to use. From a position facing the paddles, please turn around 180 degrees and walk 10 feet forward. A seating area is about 8 feet to your left. Past another wide pole on your right. You'll move from the carpeted surface to wood. At that point, turn right and move forward about six feet onto carpet and then left to a tall panel at the start of our next section. Strategic and persuasive. The description will begin automatically. Six, strategic and persuasive, approximately 14 minutes. The tall panel at the start of this section features the image of a red chess piece, the castle or rook. Franklin's words are in large print, life is a kind of chess, in large raised type. Text continues, Franklin realized that his passion for playing chess helped him be an effective colonial representative and later diplomat for the United States. Chess cultivated important traits of the mind. Strategic thinking in the game helped him anticipate moves during negotiations and checked him from making rash decisions. Chess led him to listen better, be patient, and hope for positive change, especially called for during the debates on creating the Constitution of the United States. He so appreciated the skills from chess, he wrote an essay on the topic. Please circle this panel to the right. You may note the flooring transition from carpeting back to wood. On the opposite side is a reproduction of David Martin's 1767 Portrait of Benjamin Franklin. The seated Franklin is depicted with a full head of white curls and wearing spectacles. His right thumb is at his chin, while his left arm rests on a table draped with rich fabric. He holds several papers in his left hand. He wears a waistcoat of brilliant blue with gold stripes along his sleeves and on his lapel. He has a high white collar and ruffled white cuffs that poke from under his coat. Text tells us that Martin's portrait of Franklin at 60 showed him as a gentleman of science, seated among his books and papers, overlooked by a bust of Isaac Newton. Franklin liked it so much, he had the artist make this copy, which he later sent to his family in Philadelphia. From a position facing Franklin's portrait, please turn around 180 degrees and walk 8 feet to a table on your left. A tall panel at the left has the following text, Visions of Unity. Franklin proposed his Albany Plan of Union in 1754 when the colonists faced mounting violence from the French and their allied native tribes on the western frontier. Franklin's plan for unity failed to win approval 
and the British colonies fought the French in Indian War for another nine years. Later, as an elder statesman at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he urged the states to unify under a new federal government. On the wall to the left is a 1770 image by Henry Dawkins, a detail from a commission issued by Sir William Johnson, the superintendent of Indian affairs. It depicts four colonists on the right and four Native Americans at left. Near a small campfire and before a wide tree, one colonist holds out a medallion on a necklace to one of the Native Americans. Text reads, This scene represents the alliance between the Iroquois Confederacy and the British colonies of North America. A silver chain of friendship, known as the Covenant Chain, hangs from the Tree of Peace. On the table, you'll find a replica of a round metal and the words, Please Touch. At its center, two individuals are seated at a fire. In the sky at left is the sun, surrounded by lines or rays. The medal is dated 1757 and has words around its perimeter. Let us look to the Most High who blessed our fathers with peace. Text shares, Philadelphia silversmith Joseph Richardson struck this peace medal, the first made in America, showing a Quaker settler and a native warrior sharing a peace pipe. Franklin and others distributed peace medals to promote goodwill with native populations. To the right is a flip book of founding documents. Text acknowledges that Franklin played an important role in the colony's break from England and in the formation of the new United States. He wrote the Albany Plan of Union, helped draft the Declaration of Independence, served in the negotiations for the Treaty of Amity, 1778, and the Treaty of Paris, 1783 and was a delegate to the federal convention that produced the United States Constitution. To listen to more information about this Founding Documents flipbook, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 611. Layer 611, Founding Documents flipbook, America's Founding Documents, Albany Plan of Union, 1754. Everybody cries, a union is absolutely necessary, but when they come to the manner and form of the union, their weak noodles are perfectly distracted. Benjamin Franklin, writing to Peter Collinson, December 29, 1754. The threat of war between Great Britain and France and their Native American allies convinced Franklin that the colonists needed to unify to defend their western settlements. Franklin represented Pennsylvania at a conference where he crafted a proposal, the Albany Plan of Union. It called for the creation of a colonial legislature to control commerce and organize military defense against the tax. Both the British Crown and the colonial legislatures rejected the Albany Plan. Though he experienced defeat, Franklin recognized the value of solidarity and became a champion of intercolony cooperation draft version of the Albany Plan of Union, Benjamin Franklin, handwritten copy by Meshach Ware, 1754, the New York Public Library. Declaration of Independence, 1776. Our cause is the cause of all mankind. 
and we are fighting for their liberty in defending our own. Tis a glorious task assigned us by Providence, which has, I trust, given us spirit and virtue equal to it, and will at last crown it with success. Benjamin Franklin, writing from Paris to Samuel Cooper, May 1st, 1777. The Continental Congress passed the Resolution of Independence from Great Britain on July 2nd, 1776, and appointed a committee to draft a formal statement of grievances. Thomas Jefferson drafted the declaration, and Franklin, a member of the committee, helped edit. Where Jefferson had written, We hold these truths to be sacred, Franklin substituted, We hold these truths to be self-evident, making the point that natural rights require no justification and are protected by governments instituted among men. The Declaration of Independence promoted American resolve and unity. Benjamin Franklin's copy of the Declaration of Independence, 1776, Manuscript, 1776, Library of Congress, Washington, D.C. Treaty of Alliance, 1778. It is with pleasure I inform you that France and America are now united by treaties in which our independence is acknowledged. Everything stipulated in our favor that could be reasonably desired. I congratulate you on this happy event. A declaration of war against France is hourly expected here from England. Benjamin Franklin, writing from Passy to John Emery, March 23, 1778. The fledgling American army was no match for Britain's well-established military might. In the fall of 1776, Franklin was sent overseas to negotiate a military alliance with France. Franklin's fame as a scientist, as well as his wit and charm, endeared him to the French people. He and his fellow American negotiators won the support of the foreign minister, Comte de Vergennes, and King Louis XVI. This friendship was codified in the 1778 Treaty of Alliance, in which France agreed to supply troops, funds, and armaments vital for an American victory against Great Britain. Treaties of Alliance and Commerce, Philadelphia, John Dunlop, 1778, American Philosophical Society, Philadelphia. Treaty of Paris, 1783. Yesterday evening, Mr. Hartley met with Mr. J. and myself when the ratifications of the definitive treaty were exchanged. Thus, the great and hazardous enterprise we have been engaged in is, God be praised, happily completed, an event I hardly expected I should live to see. Benjamin Franklin, writing from Paris to McHenry, May 13, 1784, just after signing the peace treaty. Franklin's continued popularity with the French helped bolster his next diplomatic victory, the 1783 Treaty of Paris, officially ending America's revolutionary war with Great Britain. Franklin used his understanding of French and British interests to negotiate a treaty to secure peace that was acceptable to all sides. The treaty gave formal recognition to the United States, established its national boundaries, and provided for the evacuation of British troops. Treaty of Paris, 
Manuscript, September 3rd, 1783, National Archives, Washington, D.C. U.S. Constitution, 1787. I agree to this Constitution with all it faults, if they are such, because I think a general government necessary for us, and there is no form of government but what may be a blessing to the people, if well administered. From Benjamin Franklin's speech to the Constitutional Convention, Journal of the Constitutional Convention, June 28, 1787. In 1787, Franklin was the oldest member of the Constitutional Convention. At age 81, he suffered from poor health and was often in excruciating pain. Nonetheless, Franklin's experience as a seasoned diplomat and negotiator, combined with his keen observation of human nature, made him a valued delegate to the convention. He brought a spirit of pragmatic compromise and a strong desire for unity to the debates. Franklin helped broker the Great Compromise, a legislature of two houses, one elected in proportion to population and one in which each state would have equal representation. Benjamin Franklin's copy of the Constitution of the United States, Philadelphia, Dunlap and Claypool, 1787, American Philosophical Society, Philadelphia. End layer 611. Immediately to the right is another tactile opportunity. Franklin designed and published the Join or Die cartoon to urge the colonies to join together against the French. The motif remained popular, reappearing later as a symbol of the strength of the colonies against England. Use your hands to trace the words Join or Die below the image of a coiling snake divided into eight regions of the colonies. A print representation of the image is mounted on the wall. Moving along to the right about six feet, the wallpaper here is adorned with tiny rooks. You'll come to a reproduction of a painting of Franklin in an audience with the French king Louis XVI. The king is seated on a throne at right atop a platform. Franklin holds a document while standing on the second step of five leading up to the king's throne. The king and his queen are surrounded by a massive canopy of red fabric draped behind them and to the sides. Text reads, Franklin urging the claims of the American colonies before Louis XVI, circa 1847, by George Peter Alexandra Healy. Healy, a popular American portraitist and history painter, produced this painting decades after Franklin met Louis XVI in France. The scene it depicts underscores the importance of Franklin's role in securing French aid and in promoting the Franco-American alliance. Move to your right about 10 feet to a video monitor that presents an estimate of stores for the Army, estimate N3, July 1779. Congress sent Franklin this detailed list of supplies needed for the Army. Listen as he conveys the requirements to a French agent. If you'd like to listen in, you may wish to pause this recording. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. Below the video monitor is a flipbook that lists supplies for the American Army. 
The Continental Congress sent lists of military supplies for Franklin to order in France. Finding no model in France for weapons of British origin, Franklin ordered sample arms from British suppliers, and the weaponry soon went under production. Once received, the American army quickly put the arms to use against British troops. In today's economy, French aid and supplies amounted to $13 billion. To listen to more information about this flipbook, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 612. Layer 612, American Army Supplies Flipbook. Supplies for the American Army. On this page, Congress describes various types of guns, as well as molds soldiers used to cast their own shot out of lead. Officers were equipped with fusil, a type of flintlock gun equipped with a bayonet. The Light Dragoon, a mounted regiment, used blunderbusses, muzzle-loading firearms with a short, large-caliber flaring barrel. In addition, both dragoons and officers were given pistols. Congress explicitly called for all the firearms to be of the quality of the best Charleville firearms made for the troops of France. During the Revolutionary War, Americans tended to refer to all musket models as Charleville, due to the reliability and popularity of the guns made at the French armory of Charleville-Mézières. The order here calls for American officers' arms to be deliberately marked with the initials U.S.A. On this page, Congress describes a range of musical instruments and supplies, as well as sheet music, for field bands. Beginning in 1756, regiments serving in the colonies had bands attached to them that performed for special occasions and ceremonies. Separate from the field music units that sounded signals on fifes and drums, the bands were composed of six to eight musicians performing on cymbals, oboes, called hoop-boys, clarinets, bassoons, trumpets, kettle drums, French horns, and German flutes. The printed collections of sheet music were specified as German music. On this page, Congress describes a variety of supplies useful for daily life in the military. With the flow of British goods to the colonies at a standstill during the war, even the most basic implements and equipment were not readily available for the troops. Ordinary soldiers received different, lower-quality supplies than officers. For example, soldiers were supplied with common razors, while officers received razors of the best cast steel. Likewise, the eating implements for the officers were of a better material than those of the soldiers. Soldiers carried pocket knives, plates, spoons, cups, candlestick, and snuffers in their knapsacks. On this and following pages, Congress describes in great detail nearly 50,000 uniforms required for soldiers, officers, and musicians. This order describes the first American military uniform. Previously, the average American soldier wore civilian clothes. The blue uniforms, consisting of a coat, waistcoat, and breeches, were faced with different colors based on rank. 
The cut and fit of these uniforms is spelled out explicitly. The coats were to be cut full, covering the belly in bad weather. The quality of the cloth was described as of the same quality with the present uniform of the French established army. All buttons were to be marked USA. The list of clothing and accessories continues for several pages and includes a description of hats, personal items, bags, and buttons. The cut of a soldier's hat helped to distinguish his rank and role from another's. The members of the light infantry, the drum corps, and wagoners all wore different hats. Soldiers carried both knapsacks made of animal skins with the hair left on for their larger supplies and clothing, and canvas haversacks for their food and eating utensils. Regiments were equipped with buttons for their hats and caps that identified their home state. On this page, Congress describes a variety of Indian goods and fabric used to help secure alliances between American troops and Native American tribes. British troops similarly used trading goods to forge relationships with Native Americans. Ruffles, colorful printed cotton fabrics, thread and yarn, and thousands of yards of heavy thick cloth for leggings, moltons, in a variety of colors, were popular trading goods. Silver arm and wristbands, brooches, ear and nose rings, as well as crosses and breastplates, gorgets, were valuable gifts to a Native American allies. Small portable mirrors were a particular luxury for Native Americans in the 18th century and thus a welcome gift. End layer 612. You're now at a corner of this area. As you turn right, a tall panel discusses Franklin's work as a master diplomat. During the American Revolution, Franklin persuaded France to commit troops, money, and supplies in support of American independence. It was risky and expensive for France to aid the new American states, but Franklin convinced the French that unity with the Americans would lead to Britain's defeat something the French had long hoped to achieve in North America. The gamble paid off when Britain surrendered in 1781. Franklin and his fellow commissioners, John Adams and John Jay, proved masterful negotiators, as they then focused their efforts on gaining a treaty that would guarantee American sovereignty and boundaries that would allow for future expansion. At the bottom of the panel, you'll find Skuggs the Squirrel, wearing a fur cap and holding a quill pen at a curling scroll. Another eight feet to the right is a table that offers several tactile exhibits. Please touch. First is a bas-relief copy of a sketch for the seal of the United States, as designed by Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, circa 1781-1782. Text informs us that the Continental Congress appointed Franklin, Jefferson, and Adams to bring in a device for a seal for the United States of America. Here is one of three sketches submitted, but rejected. In 1782, Congress adopted Charles Thompson's design. Next is the top section of the 1779 Rising Sun Chair. Text reads... 
referring to George Washington's chair used during the Constitutional Convention, Franklin reportedly remarked, I have often looked at that behind the president without being able to tell whether it was rising or setting. But now I know that it is a rising sun. On the table to the right are large bas-relief replicas of Franklin's 1776 sketch of 13 rings for coins reproduced from an ink-on-paper drawing. We learn that Franklin's design for paper money became the basis for the official penny, the Fugio cent, authorized by Congress in 1787. Both currencies displayed a chain of 13 states to represent the United States, and on the reverse was a typical Franklin piece of advice, mind your business. At left, the front side depicts 13 rings surrounding the words, we are one. Please move to your right and notice the shift in flooring from wood to carpet. Turn to your left in front of the table at your left. A tall panel stands behind the table and addresses race and slavery. Franklin's family kept enslaved African Americans as household servants. His newspaper carried advertisements for runaway slaves. He traveled to London with two enslaved servants of African descent. Yet he printed some of the earliest anti-slavery writings in America, joined the effort to educate enslaved children, wrote a scathing anti-slavery piece in a London newspaper, and eventually headed up the Abolitionist Society in Pennsylvania. What are we to make of Franklin's real views about slavery? Learn more from the evidence that survives. On the table is a touchscreen interactive display that presents some of that evidence. Please note that an emergency exit is located just past the table to the right and straight forward about 10 feet. For more information about this exhibit, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 613. Layer 613, Franklin and Slavery Interactive. The opening screen features a balance scale with Franklin's image in the background. Touching the screen brings up several questions. Did Franklin oppose slavery? Did his views on slavery and race change over time? Historians don't agree. You be an historian. Weigh the evidence and decide. Text instructs you to select a period in Franklin's life, and three choices are available. Young entrepreneur, 1723 to 1745. Aspiring politician, 1746 to 1765. And elder statesman, 1766 to 1790. Once you've selected a context, select an icon of a call to action to learn more. An image of an original document or related artifact will appear along with a context statement. You will have the opportunity to weigh in with each icon. Young Entrepreneur, 1723 to 1745. From the founding of Pennsylvania, enslaved Africans labored there. And between the 1720s and the mid-1750s, thousands of Germans and Scots-Irish came as indentured servants in exchange for passage to Pennsylvania. Philadelphia households, such as Franklin's, 
often included both slaves and indentured servants. Select an icon to learn more, then weigh in. With each icon, an image of the scale appears with the weight in the middle and arrows pointing to either side. The on-screen instructions read, drag the weight to weigh the evidence. Right below that is the question, did Franklin oppose slavery? The left side of the screen has the word yes, and the right side of the scale has no. There are three icons in the young entrepreneur category, a detail of a runaway slave from an advertisement, a pair of shoes, and a sketch of Benjamin Lay. Tap on the runaway slave icon and a document showing a slave for sale advertisement from the June 30th, 1737 Pennsylvania Gazette appears. The on-screen text reads, Franklin printed runaway and slave for sale advertisements in his newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. Advertisements were an important source of revenue. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the shoe icon and text appears with an image showing a bill for shoes. The text says, The Franklins owned slaves as domestic servants and laborers beginning as early as 1735 when he bought shoes for a Negro boy. There is no evidence that Franklin himself owned slaves after 1767, but his daughter and son-in-law still owned one slave at the time of Franklin's death. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the sketch of Benjamin Lay and images of two book title pages appear. Text reads, In the 1720s and 1730s, Franklin printed two books protesting slavery for their Quaker authors, Benjamin Lay and Ralph Sandiford. Nowhere did Franklin's name appear on those two publications. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Aspiring Politician, 1746 to 1765. The height of slave importation to Philadelphia occurred during the French and Indian War, 1754 to 1763, when fewer European indentured servants were available to colonists looking to buy labor. At war's end, European immigration increased again and the number of slaves began to decline. In this same period, moral and religious arguments began to turn Philadelphians against slavery. In 1758, the Quaker Yearly Meeting in Philadelphia disallowed its members from buying or selling slaves. Select an icon card to learn more, then weigh in. There are four icons in the aspiring politician category, a map, a woodcut of a ship, a violin, and a slate. Tap on the icon of the map and the title page from a document entitled Observations Concerning the Increase of Mankind appears. On-screen text says, In 1751, 
Franklin wrote a pamphlet analyzing population growth in the colonies, in which he argued that slavery corrupted white colonists, making them lazy. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the icon of the woodcut of a ship, and text appears with an image of an excerpt from Benjamin Franklin's 1757 will. Franklin wrote a will before departing for England in 1757, in which he stipulated that my Negro man, Peter, and his wife, Jemima, be free after my decease. It is not known what happened to Peter and Jemima, but they likely died before Franklin, who lived another 33 years. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the icon of the violin and the image of a letter from Benjamin Franklin to his wife, Deborah, regarding runaway slaves. King appears. Text reads, Franklin's slave, Peter, remained with him in London, but William Franklin's slave, King, ran away to Suffolk, where he became a servant for a woman who Christianized him, sent him to school, and taught him to play music. It is not known if William sought payment for King, or if he simply accepted his loss. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the slate icon and text appears with an image of a letter written by Benjamin Franklin about a school for Negro children in Philadelphia. African-American children in Philadelphia, whether enslaved or free, had only limited access to education. Beginning in 1758, Franklin and his wife, Deborah, were involved in efforts to educate Philadelphia's African-American children through the schools begun by Dr. Bray, an English reformer. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Statesman, 1766 to 1790. By the 1770s, still more were questioning slavery. With the Declaration of Independence stating, all men are created equal, some found it difficult to support slavery's continuance. In Europe, especially among the intellectuals who formed Franklin's social circle, anti-slavery sentiment was on the rise. The Pennsylvania legislature enacted gradual emancipation in 1780, which freed slaves gradually over the coming decades. Select an icon card to learn more, then weigh in. There are four icons in the statesman category, a detail of the King's coat of arms, the Pennsylvania Gazette newspaper, a Wedgwood medallion, and the seal of Pennsylvania. Tap on the icon showing a detail from the King's coat of arms and a document entitled A Conversation Between an Englishman, a Scotchman, and an American on the Subject of Slavery appears. On-screen text says, 
From England in 1770, Franklin wrote an anonymous anti-slavery article, which was published in a London newspaper. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen, if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the icon of the Pennsylvania Gazette newspaper, and text with an image of Franklin's last will appears. In Franklin's last will and testament, dated 1789, he stipulated that his son-in-law, immediately after my decease, manumit and set free his Negro man, Bob. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the Wedgwood medallion icon and a letter from Franklin to Wedgwood appears. Text says, In 1787, Franklin received from his friend Josiah Wedgwood a large quantity of Wedgwood medallions depicting an enslaved man proclaiming, Am I not a man and a brother? Franklin vowed to distribute them to his friends, feeling the image spoke more eloquently about the need to end slavery than any pamphlet or publication. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Tap on the Seal of Pennsylvania icon and text appears with an image of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society's petition to the First Federal Congress. In 1787, Franklin became the president of the Pennsylvania Society for promoting the abolition of slavery. A petition in Franklin's handwriting from the Society to the Federal Congress in 1789 called for the abolition of the slave trade. Drag the weight to the left side of the screen if you believe this is evidence that Franklin opposed slavery. Drag it to the right if you believe Franklin did not oppose slavery. Finishing all three segments, or choosing the I'm done option button, brings up the concluding screen showing the scales and text from the introduction. Did Franklin oppose slavery? Did his views on slavery and race change over time? Historians don't agree. Thank you for weighing in. End layer 613. Now please move to your right about 8 feet. You'll come to a railing and plexiglass barrier behind which is an actual size wood and metal sedan chair from the late 1700s. It's about six feet tall, four feet wide, and three feet deep, and painted in a dark gold with a red interior. We're told that Franklin was the oldest member of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Ill and suffering excruciating pain, he was sometimes transported in a sedan chair by prisoners from the nearby Walnut Street Jail. Sedan chairs were popular in Europe in the 18th century. Behind the chair and mounted on the wall to the right is a reproduction of Charles Wilson Peale's 1785 portrait of Benjamin Franklin. Franklin is balding, but the hair toward the back of his head is long, gray, and thin. 
He wears spectacles and is attired in a white neckerchief tucked within a dark gold vest and coat. Text reads, This is the last known life portrait of Franklin, painted when he was 81, serving as president of the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania and attending sessions of the Constitutional Convention. He is shown wearing bifocals. Now please turn around 180 degrees and cross about 18 feet on a slight angle to the left. You'll come to a touchscreen video monitor inset within the wall. The ghost house. Why a ghost house? Text explains that historical research and archaeological excavations did not turn up enough information about Franklin's house to enable the National Park Service to reconstruct it. The NPS hired the Philadelphia architectural firm Venturi and Rausch to design a ghost structure. Text reads, touch to begin. When you touch the screen, the first image on the screen is a cross-section of a three-story building with an attic. Certain rooms are highlighted on each floor. The bottom floor is the dining room, the second floor is the library, and the third floor is the music room. Touching each room provides additional views and information. To listen to additional information contained in this exhibit, please press pause on your audio player followed by 614. Layer 614, Ghost House Interactive. Why a ghost house? Learn more. The design included inscribed quotations on the paving that documented what is known about the house and viewing wells so visitors could see what remained of the foundations. Only limited accounts remain to describe the interiors. This interactive allows you to place items known to have been owned by Franklin in three different rooms and to glimpse what these spaces might have looked like in his time. Choose a room to continue. Dining room. In Franklin's time, few houses had rooms dedicated to dining. Most served multiple purposes, so his dining room would likely have been used for visiting and dancing, as well as dining. Originally the southeast room on the first floor, Franklin's dining room was later moved to the first floor of the addition he had added upon his return from France. Learn more about the dining room. When Deborah Franklin wrote to her husband in 1765, she listed the furniture in The Room Downstairs, was plainly used for dining. The sideboard, which is very handsome and plain, with two tables made to suit it and a dozen of chairs also. The following year, Gunning Bedford completed an insurance survey for the house and noted the elaborate architectural details in the room, including wainscoting, cornices, pediments, and a chimney piece with fluted columns. This room was apparently papered, as Deborah wrote to Franklin in 1766. The dining room wants new paper. The border, which is a gold one, never was put up. Franklin wrote to his sister Jane in 1787 about his new addition and described a drawing room or dining room on the same level with our old dining room 
in which new room we can dine a company of 24 persons, it being 16 feet wide and 30 and a half long. And it has two windows at each end, the north and south, which will make it an airy summer room. And for winter, there is a good chimney in the middle made handsome with marble slabs. This new dining room was frequently used for meetings of the American Philosophical Society. Get started. Touch an object below to get started. There are five items shown on the left side of the screen. Tap on the items to learn more about them. A computer rendering of the dining room is on the right. Portrait of Deborah Franklin. Painted portraits were usually placed in the dining room. When the British occupied Philadelphia during the Revolution, Benjamin Franklin's portrait was stolen, leaving Deborah's portrait a widow. Our English enemies, when they were in possession of this city and of my house, made a prisoner of my portrait and carried it off with them, leaving that of its companion, my wife, by itself, a kind of widow. You have replaced the husband with portrait of Benjamin Franklin by Madame Lavoisier, and the lady seems to smile as well pleased. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to Madame Lavoisier, October 23, 1788. Portrait of Franklin by Benjamin Wilson, 1758 to 1759, American Philosophical Society, Philadelphia. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it and the portrait of Deborah Franklin appears on the left wall of the dining room. Portrait of Benjamin Franklin. Portrait by Benjamin Wilson, 1758 to 1759, American Philosophical Society, Philadelphia. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the portrait of Benjamin Franklin appears over the fireplace. Looking glass. In the finer 18th century houses, the space between a pair of windows, called a pier, was where one might find a looking glass. Let me have the breadth of the pier that I may get a handsome glass. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to Deborah Franklin, August 1765. Private Collection Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the looking glass appears on the right wall between the two windows, the pier wall. Side chairs. Most well-appointed dining rooms of the period had a dozen or more chairs kept against the walls when not in use. A dozen of chairs also. The patterns of the chairs are a plain horsehair and look as well as a padisoy. Everybody admires them. Letter from Deborah Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, October 6th to the 13th, 1765. Based on an artifact in a private collection. The definition of padisoy appears on screen. Corded silk fabric. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the side chairs appear in the center of the room, as if they were placed around a table. Drop-leaf dining table. A custom-made sideboard and matching tables were among the furnishings of the dining room. The tables likely had drop leaves, so they could easily be collapsed and moved. 
In the room downstairs is the sideboard that you bespoke, which is very handsome and plain, with two tables made to suit it. Letter from Deborah Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, October 6th through 13th, 1765, based on artifact owned by the Philadelphia History Museum at the Atwater Kent Historical Society of Pennsylvania Collection. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the drop-leaf dining table appears fully open in the center of the room, with the side chairs around it. Franklin's letters to and from his wife, Deborah, include wonderful details about his new house, ranging from information about fabrics and paints to discussions of placement of furniture. Unfortunately, relatively few of the items described in these letters are known today. So all we have are these intriguing references. We have chosen to represent these items as ghost furnishings so that you can imagine their placement. See the objects. There are three objects, all in white, with an eye symbol on them. Tap on the eye over the rug, curtains, or sideboard to learn more about them. Rug. If you could meet with a turkey carpet, I should like it. Letter from Deborah Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, October 6th, 1765. Curtains. I send you also a piece of crimson moreen for curtains with tassels, line, and binding. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to Deborah Franklin, April 6, 1766. Maureen, strong fabric of wool, wool, and cotton, or cotton with a plain, glossy, or moire finish. Sideboard. In the room downstairs is the sideboard that you bespoke, which is very handsome and plain, with two tables made to suit it. Letter from Debmer Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, October 6 to 13, 1765. Library. When it was completed in 1786, Franklin's library was probably the largest private library in America, lined from floor to ceiling with more than 4,000 books. Here he enjoyed everything that a reasonable mind can desire. A steady stream of callers from George Washington to David Rittenhouse and Tom Paine visited with Franklin in his second floor library. Learn more about the library. In the fall of 1786, Franklin wrote to his sister, Jane Meekham, that he could hardly justify building a library at an age that will so soon oblige me to quit it. But we are apt to forget that we are grown old and building is an amusement. His new library was approximately 14 feet wide and 31 feet long, with two windows at each end and lined with books to the ceiling. Into the library I go through one of the closets of the old drawing room or bedchamber. Over the years, as his book collection grew, Franklin developed a system to organize it. The volumes he brought from England and France were all packed in uniformly constructed rectangular boxes of equal length but varied widths, which were stacked in the library without their lids, to form shelving. Limited wall space prompted him to place some cases back-to-back to form alcoves. In what little space remained, Franklin displayed some of his scientific instruments and curiosities gathered over the course of his life.
Get started. There are four items shown on the left side of the screen. Tap on the items to learn more about them. A computer rendering of the library is on the right. Flat Top Desk. This writing table he had purchased in 1772 from John Mayhew, a prominent London cabinet maker and furniture designer. Based on artifact owned by Rare Book and Manuscript Library, University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it and the flat top desk appears on the right side of the room near bookcases. Library chair with folding steps. Old men find it inconvenient to mount a ladder or steps for that purpose, taking down books from high shelves, their heads being sometimes subject to giddinesses and their activity with the steadiness of their joints being abated by age, besides the trouble of removing the steps every time a book is wanted from a different part of the library. Benjamin Franklin, description of an instrument for getting books from high shelves. American Philosophical Society, Philadelphia. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it and the library chair appears on the left side of the room. Copy press. A copy press was a relatively new invention in Franklin's time and a great time saver. Without it, one had to painstakingly make a copy by hand of every sheet. The copy press allowed for multiple copies to be made with a combination of ink, water, and pressure. Another great curiosity in Franklin's library was a rolling press for taking the copies of letters or any other writing. Manasseh Cutler, visitor to Franklin's library. Instructions appear to place this object in the room, tap it, and the copy press appears on the flat top desk. Carbonating Machine Even at the end of his life, Franklin was interested in the newest inventions. He was delighted by the gift of a machine that carbonated water, which was considered to be helpful in treating gallstones. I received your very kind letter announcing your valuable present of the glass machine for impregnating water with fixed air, carbonating water as recommended for the stone. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to John Wright, March 31, 1788. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the carbonating machine appears on the bookshelf. There are three objects, all in white, with an eye symbol on them. Tap on the eye over the fan chair, portrait, or snake jar to learn more about them. Fan chair. Franklin also showed us his great armed chair with rocker and a large fan placed over it, with which to fan himself, keeps off flies, etc., while he sits reading with only a small motion of his foot. Manasseh Cutler, visitor to Franklin's library. Portrait of Ben Franklin. In the room, Franklin's library hung his picture, painted at Paris two years before his death. Henry Wainsey, The Journal of Excursion to the United States. Snake Jar. The doctor showed me a curiosity he had just received and with which he was much pleased. It was a snake with two heads, preserved in a large vial. It was taken near the confluence of the Schuylkill within the Delaware, about four miles from this city. 
Manasseh Cutler, visitor to Franklin's library. Music Room. Franklin played the violin, cello, harp, and guitar, and was interested in the history, theory, and harmony of music. When he planned his home in Philadelphia, he specified a room on the third floor for music and entertainment. This blue room housed his musical instruments, which included the glass harmonica, a viola da gamba, a Welsh harp, and a harpsichord with a set of bells for tuning it. Learn more about the music room. Franklin's music, or blue room, held the harmonica and the harpsichord, a gilt sconce, a card table, a set of tea china, ten tapestry-covered chairs, a fire screen, a very handsome stand for a tea kettle to stand on, and ornamental china. The largest space on the third floor, this room was probably by intention set away from possibly disturbing family and noise elsewhere in the house. In 1767, Franklin wrote his wife describing how he wanted the room decorated. I would have you finish it as soon as you can, thus, paint the wainscot a dead white, paper the walls blue, and tack the gilt border round just above the surbase and under the cornish. If the paper is not equal colored when pasted on, let it be brushed over again with the same color and let the papier-mâché musical figures be tacked to the middle of the ceiling. When this is done, I think it will look very well. Franklin's detailed description of his vision for his music room allows us to imagine it quite vividly. We can picture a room with painted paneling below the chair rail, first blue, then dead white, and blue painted wallpaper above, touched up for the sake of uniformity if necessary. Get started. Touch an object below to get started. There are four items shown on the left side of the screen. Tap on the items to learn more about them. A computer rendering of the music room is on the right. Paint and wallpaper. Paint the wainscot a dead white. Paper the walls blue. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to Deborah Franklin, June 22, 1767. Wainscot. The lower three or four feet of an exterior wall when finished differently from the remainder of the wall. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the walls appear to be painted blue. Borders and ornaments. Ceiling ornaments were often made of plaster, but Franklin chose paper mache for the musical figures that decorated the music room ceiling. In addition, he proposed adding gilt borders. Tack the gilt border round just above the surbase and under the cornish, and let the paper mache musical figures be tacked to the middle of the ceiling. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to Deborah Franklin, June 22, 1767. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and a gilt border appears at the top of the wainscoting. Harmonica. Of all the musical instruments in his possession, Franklin most enjoyed the glass harmonica, his own invention. The Blue Room has the harmonica. Letter from Deborah Franklin to Benjamin Franklin, October 6 to 13, 1765, the Franklin Institute, Philadelphia. Instructions appear to place this object in the room. Tap it, and the harmonica appears 
on the right side of the room. Four-sided music stand. Franklin is believed to have designed this music stand, which consists of a four-sided revolving top that enabled four musicians to sit around it and play together. It may have been made from a damaged tilt-top three-footed table, illustrating Franklin's invented use of everyday objects. The Philadelphia History Museum at the Atwater-Kent Historical Society of Pennsylvania Collection. Instructions appear to place this object in the room, tap it, and the music stand appears on the left side of the room. Franklin's letters to and from his wife Deborah include information about fabrics and paints and discussions of furniture placement. Most of the items described in these letters are not known today, so are represented here as ghost furnishings. There are four objects, all in white, with an eye symbol on them. Tap the eye over the curtains, piano, bell harp, or viola da gamba to learn more about them. Curtains. The blue mohair stuff is for the curtains of the blue chamber. The fashion is to make one curtain only for each window. Hooks are sent to fix the rails by at top so that they may be taken down on occasion. Letter from Benjamin Franklin to Deborah Franklin, February 14, 1765. Text explains that mohair is a fabric or yarn made wholly or in part of the long, silky hair of the Angora goat. Piano, bell harp, and viola da gamba. I found your house and furniture upon my return to town in much better order than I had any reason to expect from the hands of such a rapacious crew. They stole and carried off with them some of your musical instruments, vis-a-vis -vis a Welsh harp, bell harp, the set of tuned bells which were in a box, viola da gamba, all the spare harmonica glasses, and one or two of the spare cases. Letter from Richard Bache to Benjamin Franklin, July 14, 1778. End layer 614. To continue with our tour, simply move to your left following the wall on the right past a window-like opening. Follow it around to the right several feet until you notice an opening on the right and wood flooring. You'll be at the next section of the tour, Franklin's Autobiography. The description will begin automatically. 7. Franklin's Autobiography. Approximately 4 minutes. Please move onto the wood surface of this area. Seating is available about 6 feet forward and on your right. Turn to your left and proceed forward about 15 feet. You'll find yourself at a tall panel that reads Franklin's Autobiography. Reflecting on his life in a rare moment of relaxation, Franklin began to write his autobiography in 1771 while visiting friends outside London. But the Revolutionary War and its aftermath interrupted his efforts. He returned to his autobiography while in France in 1784, and then, a year later, continued the work in his library here at Franklin Court. For the remaining five years of Franklin's life, friends urged him to complete his memoirs. He tried, but the story he told never reached the Revolution and beyond, when his life was at its most public. 
Instead, Franklin focused on stories from his early life that he considered important lessons from which young people could learn. You may want to note Skuggs the squirrel still with us. He's lounging at the right bottom of the panel, reading a manuscript. Move to the right to enter our version of Franklin's library. It's behind two cords that form a barrier. To the left, about 10 feet forward, is a screen that shows Franklin from behind, seated at a writing desk. Two windows frame the scene. It's as if we have entered Franklin's private study, and unbeknownst to the elderly patriot, he will share his story with us. As you approach the area, Franklin's story will begin automatically. All along the right side of the room is a representation of the hundreds of books that may have populated Franklin's library. If you'd like to listen in on excerpts from Franklin's autobiography, you may wish to pause this recording. Just press the second button from the top of your player between the volume controls. To continue with our tour from a position at the rope barriers, please turn to your left and proceed about 20 feet to a long, narrow area with seating on the right and four screens mounted on the wall at your left. Feel free to take a seat. This area affords you a chance to sit along one side of this aisle and observe on the other side a rotating series of images that tell a bit more about Franklin's legacy, his autobiography. The first images feature copies of Franklin's autobiography, beginning with the text, He wrote his story over 18 busy years, starting in 1773, but he died before he could complete it. First published in French, then in Swedish, and then translated back into English. Text continues, the first American edition appeared three years after his death. A drawing of Franklin was placed on the front inner leaf opposite a page that reads in very florid script, works of the late Benjamin Franklin, consisting of his life written by himself, together with essays, humorous, moral, and literary, chiefly in the manner of the spectator. The book has been in print ever since. Dozens of editions in all shapes, sizes, and designs appear on the screen, including comic books. There's a version for everyone. A Child's Life of Franklin. Meet Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, a biography in woodcuts. And even a classics comic version in Russian. It is read around the globe. Versions appear in Spanish, Japanese, Chinese, German, and Hebrew. Now please continue to the right about 25 feet on a slight decline to the final section of our tour. It provides an overview of Franklin's Philadelphia. 8. Franklin's Philadelphia. Approximately 2 minutes. A map of Franklin's Philadelphia is mounted on the wall to your left. It is a 1762 plan for the city of Philadelphia and depicts the city's streets where they flow to a grand river at the bottom of the map, roughly east of the city. Many sailing ships fill the river, and the streets above, running roughly south-north, left to right, and west-east, top to bottom, are depicted in black and white. Orange dots on the map relate to significant Philadelphia landmarks, most all of them clustered near Market Street, running west and east to the river. 
A list of these highlights is to the right and invites you to explore Franklin's Philadelphia. To listen to more information about these Philadelphia landmarks, please press pause on your audio player, followed by 811. Layer 811, Exploring Franklin's Philadelphia. 1. Franklin Court, site of the Franklin family residence. 2. Market Street Houses and Printing Shop, rental properties owned by Franklin. 3. Christ Church. Deborah Franklin attended religious services here. 4. Christ Church Burial Ground, site where Benjamin Franklin and his family are buried. 5. Pennsylvania State House, Independence Hall, site where the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution were drafted, debated, and signed. 6. Philosophical Hall, headquarters of the American Philosophical Society, founded by Franklin in 1743. 7. Carpenter's Hall, site of the Library Company, the first successful lending library founded by Franklin in 1731 and where the first Continental Congress met in 1774. 8. City Tavern, leaders of the American Revolution and delegates to the Constitutional Convention met and dined here. 9. The Wharf, site where Franklin first arrived in Philadelphia. 10. Pennsylvania Hospital, founded by Franklin and Dr. Thomas Bond in 1751. This hospital is credited as the nation's first. End layer 811. Now please follow the map wall about 12 feet to the right and then turn right and proceed 10 feet. If you'd like to use the restrooms, turn to your left and walk 20 feet. The restrooms will be to the left. Otherwise, keep walking forward for another 15 feet between two wide poles. Turn to your right and walk 20 feet to the information nook on your right. The stairs and elevator are to the left. A Park Service employee at the information nook will assist you with the return of your audio player and help with any information you may need to further explore the museum or surrounding areas. Please note the Benjamin Franklin Museum store is available on the upper level to your right after you proceed upstairs on the stairs or on the elevator. Proceeds from all sales at the store help fund educational programming and preservation efforts at Independence National Historical Park. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the Benjamin Franklin Museum, and we hope that this audio-described tour was helpful to you. The National Park Service is committed to helping all people appreciate the importance of our nation's historic resources. Thank you for visiting us, and we invite you to return again soon.